Hey, 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 Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing very, very well. So, freedomainradio.com slash donate. Please, please help us out. Help us continue to bring the great and essential work of philosophy to a world which I dare say needs it more than ever. That's freedomainradio.com slash donate. And if you've got some shopping to do, you can go to fdrurl.com slash Amazon. So five great questions tonight, great conversations. The first is, can we have a free society without restoring cultural homogeneity, ethnic homogeneity? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. I know there's a lot of conjecture floating around on the interwebs about that. I had a great conversation about that. And someone else wanted to dig into some of the resentment that seems to be concentrated in socialist populations or communist mindsets. Uh, Intelligence is such an important part of humanity. The poor and low IQ populations, do they feel that something has been taken from them? Do they feel that something is missing, which is perhaps IQ, which can be exploited by socialists? It's a great conversation about that. Now, there's an old saying, you know, it's not really a saying, I guess it's more of a mindset, it says, don't do business with friends, don't do business with family. Well, I've, I've had some experience with that, and uh, a young fellow wanted to call in, or did call in, and ask, what advice can I give someone who's planning on starting a business with a friend? Uh, concise, effective, powerful, useful, I think. The fourth caller, ah, it was an interesting one. So I said years ago that, you know, people think I'm arrogant or whatever, but I wrote a book on ethics, which was to organize my thought thoughts about ethics and, and explain ethics and understand ethics, which meant that I had a significant knowledge gap regarding ethics before I wrote the book. And he thinks that I said I don't know anything about ethics, therefore I'm going to write a book about ethics. And helping to unpack people's misperceptions about what you said is pretty, pretty important. So I hope you'll find that conversation helpful. I know I did. And, hmm, young people, millennials, you ever feel paralyzed? You ever feel like you really can't get much done in the world? Nothing's going to change. Can't win. Don't try. Well, we had a young fellow calling in saying, how can we rouse the sleeping and slumbering energies of the millennials and get them on the motion to helping us build a freer society. Well, we went pretty deep, but it was very productive. So I hope you enjoy the show. All right, up first today, we have Jordan. Jordan wrote in and said, with ever-increasing levels of social unrest associated with alien elements of our societies and immigration being closely tied to the expansion of state power, do you think that liberty can realistically be achieved without first restoring homogeneity? Once the question has been read, I will be happy to expand upon my premise, referencing countries that have historically collapsed or faced balkanization as a result of demographic conflict, as well as some of the reasons why I believe that immigration specifically facilitates expansion of the state's control over the population. That's from Jordan. Hey, Jordan, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Steph. It's great to finally get to talk to you. I've been a really big fan for years. Well, let's hope I don't blow it then. It destroy any <laughs> positive impact you have from the show. So do you want to talk a little bit, uh, for those who aren't aware, and it's not like this is taught in government schools a lot, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the countries that, you've, uh, uh, that you wanted to reference? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, first off, I just want to say that after the Manchester terrorist attack, was when I decided that I finally had to call in and speak up about this. Um, living in the UK, um, we don't get the option to talk about this publicly. Right. So thankfully, you are for the 
call-in show that's been a fantastic utility to people like me. So I've written down quite a few examples of countries that have collapsed and been separated into into separate um, states along ethnic lines or religious lines. Um, you have a Pakistan that separated from India in 1947 due primar- primarily to their religious differences where the Muslims and Hindus were unable to live peacefully side by side. And then further, the Bangladesh Liberation War was fought then in 1971 where the cultural and, lu- and linguistic differences between the Bengalis and the Pakistanis outweighed any religious unity between those two uh, Muslim regions. Um, is Czechoslovakia in Europe in 1993. Um, the country obviously split in half. You had the ethnic Czechs and the Slovaks living under one state, which was previously communist. Uh, but the Czechs were much more influential in the communist government, and uh, the Slovaks were very resentful of that. Uh, they separated into what we have today, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Uh, the Yugoslavia broke up into a whole mess of different countries over the uh, Yugoslav wars fought between 1991 and 2001 into Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Slovenia, Montenegro, Macedonia and Kosovo. And the theme amongst all of these uh, countries is that it was either, either ethnic groups or religious groups that separated apart and balkanized the country and went and lived in their own areas under their own governments. And the list goes on, but I think you're getting the point now. Right, right. Is there more you wanted to add before I sort of weigh in with this uh, challenging question? Yeah, well, um, what made me first sort of realize this, I was reading um, 18th century conservative writer Edmund Burke, and he said... Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. And the less of it there is within, the more of it there must be without. And uh, these restraints then come from, a po- come from within when a population shares cultural and moral values. But when they don't, external force has to be provided to impose those restraints. So what that means then is if you want freedom on a stable political basis – you have to have, or this implies, if it's given to be true, that you have to have a homogenous culture and society composed of people who share the same values and actually want to live together, and they don't want to hurt each other. If you have people with conflicting cultures and values and traditions, then those people can only be held together by the force of a increasingly authoritarian state. Well, as as is the case in many countries in the Middle East and and uh, in 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 Africa and so on, uh, where you have a population that is um, unable or unwilling to restrain themselves according to universal principles, then you're going to end up with increasingly authoritarian regimes. And of course, as multiculturalism has grown, so has the state grown in the West. I don't think these two things are unrelated. I'm not saying they're exactly causal, but they're certainly coincidental. Yeah, of course. Um, what I said in my question as well, I added onto the bottom of it, why I think that um, governments in the West may actually be using immigration specifically to facilitate expansion of their own state power. And this is evidenced by the fact that they aren't actually taking 
measures that will that we know will prevent things like terrorist attacks uh, taking place in the future. Instead, they impose things like um, the Patriot Act, or Theresa May in the UK is now proposing uh, sweeping new internet regulations here, massive uh, spying on our own British citizens as a result of a few terrorist attacks taking place. So the reason why I think uh, they aren't you know, preventing immigration into the country, which uh, we know from countries like Poland, you know, which have no terrorist attacks because they don't have a Muslim population, is 100% effective, <laughs> more or less, at preventing terrorism. Um, pe people in government who I think have a innate desire to expand their own power can do so by importing alien elements, which they know will reliably cause social unrest, and then the government can then step in, expand their own power under the grounds of keeping the peace. Right, right. I think that they are profiting, intense state power is profiting from a divided culture, but I don't know that it's fundamentally due to that, because the policies were put in place... Um, well, I guess they're just about as old as I am, right? In the mid-1960s, <laughs> in the mid-1960s was when the decision was made throughout the Western world, and it was driven by the leftists, uh, it was driven by the liberals, it was driven by the, Tory, uh, by the um, labor and by uh, the Democrats and so on, to, to bring the third world into the West. To, to switch, I mean, particularly in America, to switch immigration from white Europeans to, well, everyone but... Uh, and so that, it wasn't like the current crop of politicians is, is just attempting to ride that wave. And, and sure, uh, they can um, use terrorist attacks and so on to expand their own power, but fundamentally it was all put in place, I mean, before some of these politicians were even born. So I think laying that at their feet may be a bit... Right. But I will say this, and I, this is an analogy, which I know is not an argument, but... <laughs> but <clears throat> Imagine imagine you own a sporting goods store and okay. you're in a Sopranos episode and you, you get in deep because you've got a gambling problem. You get in deep with the mob. And man, the mob, the, the, the mafia, you got to pay these guys. Like you owe them $150,000 or 200. Like you're just not going to be able to pay them with the money that you have. And let's say you're married and you can't, Hoover up that amount of money out of the family account to pay off. And you can't take a loan out on your business because your wife's got a co-sign, whatever, right? You're stuck. You're stuck. And let's say you're so worried and you're so nervous and you're so anxious that you're not being good at managing your store. It falls into disrepair. You don't order new replacements for your sporting goods and, and people stop coming to your store. So... And, and, of course, the mafia is charging more and more interest on you and, and, you know, guys are starting to circle you with baseball bats. And, you know, things are looking pretty hopeless in terms of you being able to pay off your bills and, and continue. Well, what out do some people have in that situation? What do they do? There's not much they can do. Sure. Sure, there's something they can do. You know what they can do? They can burn down their store. <laughs> I and guess can, that's right. They can burn down their store. They can collect the insurance. They can pay off the mob and they can ride off into the sunset, right? 
when you can't pay your bills. And it has struck me. There's no chance that the West has to pay off its unfunded liabilities. Like, they're so many multiple times bigger than the entire economy of the West. I mean, we're not just right. talking Illinois, we're not Chicago, we're not, you know, we're not talking California or even Ontario. I mean, my, the province I live in, it's a five times per capita debt larger than California, which is called California or the left coast or <laughs> mad head with a suntan. <laughs> And there's, there's no, like, you, you, can't, you can't pay it off. Now, the traditional answer that governments have when they can't pay off what they owe the population is to start a war. Right. Because right, you start a war, and people are willing to accept sacrifices if there's a war on. So in, in times of peacetime, you know, if you go, I don't know, let's say you go to um, people who are either receiving or about to receive old age pensions, and you say, sorry, folks, <laughs> funny story. You voted for all this free stuff, but you didn't really vote to pay for it now, did you? So there's really nothing here, and we can't keep preying on the young because they're already burdened down with student debts that lead them to nowhere but a Starbucks job and a lifetime of writing bitter, angsty, anarchist poetry about the powers that be, <laughs> mistaking the government for the free market at all times. We don't really have enough money for you, so sorry, we're going to have to cut your pension significantly and you're going to have to double up and you're going to have to find some way to, to get by. Well, if you try that, of course, everyone's going to go mental because they're not in a fight or flight state where they're willing to accept the concept of sacrifice. Now, in a war, I mean, people will accept rationing, like, like little food stamps. They'll accept like getting one stick of butter a week. The women will accept not having stockings, which if you've ever seen British women's legs... <laughs> Stocking's not always the worst idea in the world, or at least when I was a kid. Hey, let's put some fog over those varicose veins a little, shall we? So people will accept privations. They will accept reduced standard of living. They will accept... When, when their fight-or-flight mechanism gets activated, then they will accept privations. They won't otherwise. And there is this general a snowball with regards to immigration in the West. And it's all founded... On, on one basic idea that everyone's interchangeable, right? That that someone, what is the difference if someone comes from Yemen or, or, or Somalia or Papua New Guinea or like, what's the If you think there's any difference, it must be racist, right? I mean, this is... Thousands of years of divergent evolution. <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, you know, different brain volumes, different number of spinal columns, different histories, different cultures, different methodologies for dealing with gender, different concepts of the state, different, I mean, different religions. I mean, you name it. That You you, you don't have to be racist to notice that some fruits are different from other fruits, right? No, it's absolutely right. Right. So, so for the politicians to restrict immigration, they would have to say, I mean, basically, they would have to say in England, they would have to say, well, we prefer the people who are here to the people who could be here. And that is going to make the press go mental because the press is going to start screaming racism. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard this. Um, you probably have. Uh, it was in the 60s. Uh, Enoch Powell, British politician, uh, had a speech called Rivers of Blood, which is well worth looking up and, and reading through about how he thought this third world migration was going to end up. And um, it's let's just say it's worth reading. But of course, even back in the 60s, he was decried as a racist and, and so on. And so now things have become even more hysterical in that regard. Plus, of course, you have a massive voting block of people who want their own countrymen to keep coming in. 
You know, if you've just come in from Pakistan, you want people from Pakistan, your relatives, your friends, the, your, your, cho- your, 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 cho- your childhood friends, all the people you grew up in, you come on over, right? It's great here. Oh, lots of free, we- lots of free welfare, free healthcare, best stuff in the world, right? The fact that they're burdening and cracking the system is, is another matter. So you have a huge voting block that you didn't have before, and you have even more hysteria regarding racism than you did in the past. So what politician is going to really want to have anything to do with that, right? Right. That's a very important thing you bring up, how the different ethnic groups that are coming into the West maintain their own ethnic identities and they don't assimilate to the Western um, Western nations that they're inhabiting. And, and why should um, they? No, seriously, well, they why It's not should in their they? best interest to do so. Why should they? I mean, they're being paid to not assimilate. That's the whole point of welfare. Exactly. The whole point of welfare is you don't have to learn English. You don't have to adapt to local customs. You don't have to adapt to local work environments. I mean, can you imagine if some horrible... Let, let's imagine. Let's imagine, just for the sake of argument, Jordan, that there's someone in the third world who's sexist. Doesn't want to work for a woman, right? So they come to England, and then they have a female boss. They mouth off to that female boss, and what happens? Well, they get fired in the West. Yeah, they get fired. And then they go in with their resume saying, well, I worked for 14 days at this place until I called my female manager some unholy word, and she fired me. And then the new bosses are going to be like, no, we got women working here. This is not going to work out, right? Mm-hmm. So he got yep. no job. What's he going to do then? Well, he's going to do what a third of America, a third of the people who moved to America in the 19th century, he's going to move back home because he didn't assimilate. He didn't learn the local customs. I mean, you can't move to some new place and not assimilate unless you're independently wealthy. And as you and I both know, a lot of the people coming into the West from the third world, not exactly the poster childs of independent wealth. So they're being paid to not integrate. Now, integration takes a long time anyway. Like if you look at uh, Chinatown or whatever uh, when in, in the States, right on the West Coast in particular, you know, the people from China, they lived in Chinatown and um, a lot of them never particularly learned English that well. Their kids, it was a different matter and then their grandkids were more assimilated. But it takes 75 to 100 years to find out if the assimilation thing is working out. And that was during a time when there was no welfare state. And so in order to succeed, to grow, right, that there was a fruit called success and a punishment called you can't live here because you have no money. And that, even then, it took a long time to integrate. And that, of course, when you're talking about East Asian and Chinese and, and Japanese and so on, well, they've got an IQ of 106 on average, they're going to do really well. The welfare state holds very little appeal to people of a high IQ because it's going to trap you in a low-rent occupation or a low-rent situation. And you can earn much more going out into the free market and getting a job. But if you've got an IQ of 80 or 85, the welfare state is the very best deal for you on the planet. There's no possible incentive for you to want to leave the welfare state, to go out into the free market, to learn a, a cultural mores that you may find abhorrent, to learn a language you find particularly complicated. You, why, why, you, like you, you, you won't do better. Like, you won't even come close to doing as well as the kind of income you're getting on the welfare state. So it's like they're building 
sections of another country, they're putting a big wall around it, and they're throwing money and resources into it. And then they're saying, gosh, I wonder why people aren't integrating. Plus, of course, you know, there's interviews with people from the third world saying, you know, we don't want to integrate. Integration, that's your idea. It's not our idea. We don't want to integrate at all. We love our values. We love where we came from. It's not, it's not that. Yeah, I mean, you, they're openly telling you <laughs> they don't want to integrate <laughs> a lot, a lot of people. So You've got examples of ethnic groups then who have maintained their own ethnic identity after hundreds if, or, or thousands of years of not having a state of their own. They've permanently inhabited other people's nations and maintained a very strong ethnic identity. For example, you have uh, the Jews, the, the most obvious example five, here. Five, six thousand years, not even a, not even a country managed to maintain their cultural and religious uh, identity in a very strong fashion. Now, the Jews are also facing problems with integration because, like, significant portions of Jewish women are marrying non-Jews, and that is becoming uh, a problem. But yeah, thousands. It's funny because, of course, you know, there are Jews out there who are preaching multiculturalism and integration and so on. It's like, have you looked in the mirror lately? Not so much <laughs> with the integration. Yeah, they're having a lot of the same problems that the rest of the West is having in general. But a lot of the problems... The main thing I'm calling up to address is whether I know economically there's no incentive for uh, these foreigners coming into the West to integrate themselves into Western society, but more I wanted to focus on the social and ideological differences because in a lot of the examples that I've looked up historically, and there's hundreds and hundreds of, of historical examples of countries uh, facing balkanization or worse uh, one group being completely removed by whatever means that entails by another group over either religious differences or ethnic differences and people just end up resenting each other over more social and identitarian um, differences that they have rather than economic ones well, okay. So, I mean, I understand what you're saying, Jordan. Now, let me give you sort of a very brief thing about religious differences. Let's let's just fundamentally we're talking about religious differences. That's the major source of contention with these kinds of things and communists or leftists. So, yeah, I should say. So, the question is, how did the West sort out the problem of religious differences? Well, separation of church and state. Because when there was a state religion, then every single religion, as you know, would try and get hold of state power to impose or enforce its version of religiosity on everyone else. And if, and if they, they couldn't stand aside from that battle, they had to try, because if they didn't, then some other group would get it and their religion would be hunted or extinguished or driven out or whatever it was, right? So, so the problem of, this, uh, of religious warfare, which plagued Europe, for hundreds and hundreds of years, resulting in millions of deaths. The problem was solved by saying, okay, everybody, back to your corners. The government will not legislate religion. And then everyone was like, ah, okay. <laughs> I'm willing to give that up if everyone else is willing to give that up. I'm willing to have a separation of church and state as long as no one's trying to weasel in through the back door and impose their religion through the state in some nefarious manner. So... When it comes to how we live together, the only example I think that really matters, that really works, is a freedom of religion. We need freedom of culture. What that means is a separation of culture and the state. 
It means a separation of religion and the state. It means a separation of race or ethnicity and the state. Which means you need truly colorblind laws. You need laws that um, will not favor one group uh, over another. You need no welfare state. You need, um, you know, all of the economic freedoms that you can imagine. Then the productive people will all work together. The unproductive people will probably leave in the long run. And there may be self-segregation into communities. And this is not due to racism. It's due to the fact that people are bloody busy. You know, you got a job, you got a job, you're raising kids, you, you know, you got your bills to pay, you got your house to maintain. I mean, you're busy. You don't have time to learn 12 different languages because there's 12 different languages in your neighborhood. You don't have time to learn 12 different cultures and what people like and don't like and find offensive and don't find offensive. And you don't have time to figure out everyone's religious preferences. It's just easier to deal with people like yourself. And the only people who love diversity tend to be the young who've got lots of time on their hands and love, frankly, banging people from exotic cultures. <laughs> You've got people that have been through uh, government schooling programs. Well, well yes, but so. it's one thing to go through government schooling programs. It's another thing to try and actually raise your children in a highly diverse environment where you're worried. Everyone's got different religious views. So you're worried about your kid, you know, maybe your kid's your Zoroastrian household and, and across a Buddhist and then down the road is a Muslim or two and over here are some Christians and there's some atheists. And, you're, you, you know, if your kid's all mixed together, how long's your religion going to last? Because they're all going to be talking about their own particular things. And they're going to come back with questions and say, well, Bobby does it this way and Ahmed does it this way and, you know, Naira does it this way. And it's not going to, it's not going to hold I have together. Seen, I haven't read it myself, but I've seen it referenced in some of the research that I've done preparing for this. But, uh, are you familiar with the Bowling Alone studies? Oh, yeah, Putnam was his name, name, right? Yes, yeah, suggested that... Um, well, the results that he found were that positive social outcomes were, um, or rather I'm getting that backwards, homogeneity in a community was associated with almost exclusively positive social outcomes. Sure. So and, I can and, see and that people diversity, might like to... Yeah, diversity is like a neutron bomb. Like they, or I guess it's like the democratic control or the leftist control of a city. The buildings are standing, but nobody goes outside. Uh, everyone cocoons in. So diversity is great for people who make movies and television and video games because nobody goes out. You know what the great competitor is to corporations that want you sitting on a couch? It's the great outdoors. So I think one of the reasons why uh, the media loves pushing diversity is that diversity means that your neighborhood falls apart, you can't go outside, so you sit home and watch TV. But as you mentioned, that um, if, we had, if we had a state where we had... Uh, laws that were entirely founded upon universal principles. We had separation of church and state. We, uh, avo we avoided letting culture influence our, our political policies, etc. Then we may be able to live in a diverse society. But that is a hypothetical. What we'd have right now is the, the polar opposite of that. We do have governments currently who are passing policies that do benefit certain groups more than they benefit others. Well, which and is third world why immigrants overwhelmingly is, vote for the left, right? Yeah. I mean, you've got, you've got imams in England, as you know, saying that the Muslims who don't vote Labour are going to hell. Yeah, course. that's exactly yep. how <laughs> democracy was supposed to function. Good job, everyone. Yeah, we know statistically um, immigrants overwhelmingly vote for the left. But... Um, Realistically, I want to talk about from our current standpoint. Do you think that we can 
realistically uh, move towards a society that's more founded upon liberty and uh, universal principles from where we are now. Oh, no, that's going to happen that- no matter what. I mean, that, that's going to happen no matter what, because the welfare state is going to break. Would it re- require a collapse of our current system? Do you oh, think I that- mean, I don't know. What's, what's it like for you, Jordan, talking to people about this stuff? Are they open <laughs> to it or are they just close their eyes, put their fingers in their ears, stick it. their asses in the air, stick their ostrich heads in the sand and go, la, 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 I can't hear you. I... I would 100% lose my job if I spoke to this about anyone, uh, to right. anyone in the UK and anyone found out about it. Right. And, you know, so, I've got to so watch yeah, my people, words. If people won't listen to reason, then they're going to have to listen to bitter experience. There's no, I mean, that's just the way the world works. You know, an addict either finds a way to curb his addiction or he dies or he ends up broke or he ends up in prison. I mean, you either learn from... Reason and evidence, or you're going to have to learn from bitter experience. People don't even want to talk about it. Well, I shouldn't say that. People do want to talk about it. I mean, the majority of people in Europe want an end to Muslim immigration. That's something that needs to be talked about. And right. the problem is the media won't let anyone talk about it. Well, and the police, who seem to be entirely keen on <laughs> Well, it's, it's a lot more fun to police people typing mean things on, on Facebook than it is to go into a no-go zone and try and arrest someone, right? I mean, that's, I, I understand what the police are doing. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's a lot more fun to kick down someone's door if you know they're not going to fight back, right? So, Exactly. The people typing on Facebook aren't going to fight back. If you tried to go into one of the many Muslim no-go zones and arrest someone, then they'll riot. What did you see? That's um, the- oh, there was a gif recently that was floating around on, I think it was just this last week, about a bunch of migrants chasing a bunch of British policemen who were sprinting, hot-footing it down the street in, in full retreat. I mean, it's... Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. so, so I mean, what was it? Just just over last weekend, 13,500 migrants from North Africa or from Africa come come to Italy. You can't sustain that. You can't sustain it. So the welfare state, I mean, government's going to run out of money even faster. The, 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 the migrant crisis is going to accelerate the destruction of the socialist redistribution system known as sort of modern democracy. I mean, it's going to uh, take it out But then what's going to happen faster. after that? Because we are, we are getting a huge amount of resentment towards the groups in society who we perceive, whether it's accurate or not to reality, but the groups that we perceive to be the cause of these uh, negative social changes that we're experiencing, people have a huge amount of resentment towards those groups. Well, that's, like, uh, that's, Tommy that Robinson, me off. I'm sure you're familiar with him. I'm Tommy sorry. Robinson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of no, he's been on the show. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Jordan. This pisses me off. This pisses me off. Blaming the migrants is stupid. It's, come on. Oh, come on. You have a giant welfare state and no borders. I don't blame the migrants at all. I think they they're are doing exactly what you interest. would do in their situation. I would. I absolutely would. Of course would. you would. Well, you know, they. I might be a burden on the taxpayers. And ha, 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 come on. I mean, if, if you leave huge piles of gold out on the front yard and say, we've gone on vacation for a month and you come back and some of your gold is gone. Oh, my goodness. Those terrible thieves. Ah, OK, maybe what they're doing is wrong. But uh Come on. It's not the fault of the migrants. It's not the fault of the immigrant groups. They're doing exactly what any sane, rational actor would do in their situation. The problem is people have not wanted to talk about the danger and destructiveness of the welfare state, which has now been known for well on 50 years. People have not wanted to take that topic on. The politicians aren't going to take it on. Of course not, because they need a groundswell of opposition to the welfare state before they're even willing to tackle the topic. 
And so you need people who are going to talk about the welfare state, who are going to talk about the destructiveness of social engineering, who are going to talk about the eugenics of the welfare state, where you're taking money from smart people and giving it to less smart people to have more babies. I mean, we have, it's immoral. It's a violation of property rights. It's a violation of what Europe and the West has stood for for hundreds and hundreds of years. It is a new aristocracy with the bottom at the top. And so the fact is that the West got greedy, uh, women got kind of crazy with their vote and wanted to vote away all the consequences to bad decisions. And so now this is one of the final symptoms. The migrant crisis is a symptom of the self-betrayal of thou shalt not steal the West has been gorging itself on for the past 50 years. And the wages of sin are problems. You know, if you indulge in a sin, if you indulge in immoral behavior, if you're a drug addict, if you're a food addict, if you're a sex addict or a gambling addict, yes, it is going to harm you. But it's like the gambling addict who blows all of his money and then the bank comes and repossesses his home because he can't pay his mortgage and he says, the problem is the bank. No, the bank is the symptom. The migrants are a symptom of your failure in the West, to deal with the immorality of the welfare state that has been pointed out since the last couple of hundred years. The last, one of the first things that happened, and and it's been done before. I did a whole Peter Schiff show on this years ago about Spenumland, which you should look up. S-P-E-E-N-H-A-M-L-A-N-D. Spenumland. It's been done millions of times before. There's the entire example of the goddamn Roman Empire and the welfare state and how it falls down. This has been well known for thousands of years, and Europe just said, well, we'll get it right this time. This, this socialism, this redistribution, this destruction of the family, this, that, this letting the government control the vast movement of trillions of pounds in society, we got it. Never worked before, destroyed entire cultures and civilizations before, but we can taste of this fruit and it'll be just fine. We got this one. We got no problems with it. Magic has happened and we can suddenly have massive numbers of massive amounts of money going through the hands of very few people. They're never going to use it to buy votes. They're never going to be corrupted by that power. People are never going to get dependent on that money. Families won't be destroyed. Neighborhoods won't be destroyed. All of the things that were easily and ably predicted in 1957 by Atlas Shrugged, not to mention the Moynihan Report, not to mention Enoch Powell, not to mention all the people who've been demonized, Joseph McCarthy among them. This redistribution, this socialization of wealth, it was a deal with the devil Everybody had been told that it was going to be a bad idea, and everybody went for it anyway, and has refused to talk about it since. And then they say, well, the problem is the migrants. No. Well, a lot of the resentment of the migrants obviously comes from the individual actions of the migrants once they're in the country. Of course, it's the government's fault for allowing, for creating the circumstances under which the migrants can come here in the first place. But, you know, when you have something like Rotherham in the UK, where you have what is it, like 1,500 uh, girls molested oh, over more a than molested. several years, for example? More than molested. Doused in gasoline, threatened with weapons, passed around, raped into near atomic oblivion. I mean, it's, I mean, it's the most unholy uh, pedophile sex slave ring that, that can be conceived of. And uh, I just wanted to sort of point that out. I mean, it's a very mild term that you're yes. using, even I mean, though it's a horrifying term. Very weak term. language, yeah. I'm used to having to sort of self-censor being... A British citizen, but um, that sort of thing going on creates the resentment between uh, the population groups in a country. And I do agree with you that that uh, eventually Western nations will start to collapse. But that resentment's already there, and it's only going to get worse as we go 
further towards but this, this is uh, oh it's like panic situation no but and- you you you're, you're taking away everyone's agency look racial iq differences have been known for hundreds of years I mean, it wasn't called IQ in the past. I mean, the IQ test is about 100 years old, give or take, right? Racial IQ differences have been known for a long time. Incompatibilities between certain ideologies have been known for a long time. So here's the problem. This is empowering to everyone in the West. Stop blaming other people. Stop blaming your politicians. Stop blaming the media. It's you. You're the problem. When people bring up uncomfortable topics, do you scream that they're racist? Do you scream that they're phobic? Do you scream all of this crap at them and shut them down? What about when the media goes and attacks people? When the media goes and attacks people for speaking the truth, do you continue to buy that media? Do you continue to tune in? Do you continue to consume the ads? Now, I know in England there's the BBC, which is this fascist, Stalinist kind of forced, uh, literally fascist, <laughs> right? I mean, it's a uh, it's, uh, publicly owned uh, propaganda arm. And so I, I, in England, there's, there's a challenge with regards to that. And that's not the only place in, in Europe where that happens. But trust me, there's a lot of private or semi-private media outlets that are still eagerly consumed by the British people, even though those media outlets are putting out the most abominable and abhorrent trash imaginable. So do you encourage? Are you curious? Do you look things up? Do you allow for the exercise of the free speech rights that you still have to some degree uh, in the West, I mean, particularly, of course, in America. Do you continue to buy and consume media that is harmful to any kind of productive conversation about these challenges? Do you encourage people to, to look these things up? Are you open or do you shut your mouth by fear of disapproval? Do you continue to fund the media that is promoting all these lies and falsehoods? It's you. This looking at other people and, oh, these giant power structures and all that. No. Do you send your kids off to uni? Do you send your kids off to university so they can be propagandized into leftist, self-destructive androids? Well, if you do, it's not the government. It's not the media. It's not the universities. It's not the politicians. It's you. Who do you vote for? What do you promote? What stand do you take? I'm not saying go get yourself fired. But it's up to every single individual to look in the mirror and say, what can I do? I don't have to be self-destructive, but there's still so many things that you can do that aren't self-destructive. There's still so many things that you can talk about that aren't going to get you in trouble. Of course, you don't want to be the guy who taught his daughter, who taught his dog to do a Hitler salute, but um, (laughs) there's still so much that you can do in private conversation. There's still so much information you can bring to bear uh, with, with people. And if no one's willing to do that, you know, this is an old thing that the late Nathaniel Brandon used to say. He used to say to the people who would complain about their lives, oh, my life's not getting better. I got all these problems, this, that, and the other. He would say, the essence of what I want to tell you is this. No one is coming. No one is coming to save you. No one is coming to make things better. No one is coming to turn things around. It's up to you and only you. Because the moment you think someone else is going to solve the problem and everyone thinks that, the problem will never get solved. You must take action. Inspire other people through your action and do it. I'm not going to do it. Tommy Robinson's not going to do it. Nigel Farage, okay, maybe. (laughs) He's going to get close. (laughs) Nobody can do it. I mean, Donald Trump, he's just one guy. He can't do it. He needs the support of millions and millions of people and everyone has their part to play. 
Can you look in the mirror and say, you know what? The welfare state was a terrible, terrible idea and is really endangering Western civilization just as it brought down the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was swept in and overtaken by people from outside its borders. Oh, it's also repetitive for words, right? And so this idea, well, but the media and the politicians and this and the that and the other, it's like, come on. If, if, and not you, but if people feel that passive, then don't even get out of bed. Don't bother fighting because you're going to lose. You have to act in some manner, and there's still more scope and less courage that is required to act now to save your culture and your civilization that's ever been asked of any group before in history. This is not the First World War. You're not being dragged into a trench and having to rub goose fat on your frozen feet so the toes don't snap off like the ends of a popsicle in a car door. You're not being asked to walk into withering German machine gun fire. You're not being bombed by the Luftwaffe with searchlights stabbing up like ghostly fingers to Hitler in the sky. I mean, you, you, you have to have some difficult conversations. You have to look into your heart. You have to be courageous still in At language then, only. We knew who the enemy though was, though, right? I'm telling I mean, you who the enemy <laughs> is. The enemy is people in the West's avoidance of the basic reality of what has been told to them over and over and yeah. over again. Welfare state is a bad idea. It's a violation of property rights. Um, and races and ethnicities are different, and we don't know how to bridge that gap as yet. This is all facts. It's all basically empirically proven, right? Yeah. So the enemy is whoever doesn't want to talk about this stuff. And listen, I know England. One thing you fuckers are great at is shaming the living shit out of people. <laughs> There's no... Okay, maybe a constipated highly angry, potentially sumo-wrestling Japanese father has a greater and more contemptuous sneer than your average British person, particularly the upper-class toughs. Oh, you're so pathetic, you know, like that, that contempt that British people can pour upon those who step out of line. How about using that contempt for good? And how about saying, we're in a desperate strait here, we need to start talking openly and honestly about things. And you see someone holding up one of those pitiful, shitty excuses for newspapers called British tabloids. You say, did you give those people a fucking penny? Get the fuck out of my house. People are tuned into some shitty TV show that's programming and broadcasting all this propaganda. Say, I know you're forced to pay for it. Nobody's forcing you to watch it. Turn that shit off. Or get out of my house. You need to start exercising social ostracism. It's peaceful. It's voluntary. It's perfectly moral. In fact, I would say it's positively moral. And if you're not willing to do that, well, then you're like someone who's like standing on the train tracks. And I guess like that old painting of the horse thundering towards the train, you're just standing there. Train's coming. What do you have to do? Lift your fucking foot, step off the tracks. And look, you've survived. But if you don't want to lift your foot off the tracks and step off, well, I guess the train is going to wear a new bloodied nose called This is Where the West Used to Be. So, shall I take from that to bring it back to my original question that you do believe that liberty can still be realistically achieved without first well restoring homogeneity that that is more of a no, listen, what i rest- saw as a restoring, possible restoring result. homogeneity but, is the rivers of blood you know that right 
Come on. I mean, or the story of homogeneity I mean, there, sounds there real nice. There has been peaceful balkanizations in the past, but they're rare. Most of the time it is a war. <laughs> right. It is, no, that is um, an extraordinarily violent thing that I hope never, ever comes to pass. But is it not, it, it seems, I know you've told me now there's ways that it can be avoided, but it seems sort of inevitable that when the government who is restraining people at the moment finally steps out of the way, the people are going to kill each other. That's what it seems like to me, at least. Well, like this is why you're not hearing what I'm saying. Without the welfare state, there's nothing. Hang on. Without the welfare state, there's nothing to fight over. The problem. Look, if there's a big group of people from Bangladeshi, of Bangladesh or, or Syria or whoever, if they're like I don't know, living down the road, but they're not taking over the government, that they're not. I don't know, forcing blasphemy laws down my throat, or they're not digging in my wallet for their welfare payments and so on. I got a life to live. They got a life to live. Maybe we'll cross paths. Maybe we'll enjoy each other's food. Maybe we'll chat over the backyard fence from time to time. I don't care. It's fine. I got no problem with it at all. The problem is when they're going to grab the power of the state to control me, then I've like, oh no, now I've got to grow, group up with a bunch of people and try and grab the power of the state before they do. And when the hell does that ever end, right? It's like in prison. You know, you go to prison and, you know, if you're a white guy and you go to prison, maybe there's going to be a bunch of ethnic tensions with other races and groups, ethnicities within the prison. And now, I don't know, like I say, gay for this day, you, you got to go find some group of white people. And it's like, ah, you know, I don't want this gang warfare, but that's because it's prison. So what I'm saying is start to talk to people about the real source of the problem. The real source of the problem is Western immorality. It is Western immorality. It is the welfare state and other things. I'm just, but I'm going to focus on that because that to me is the big central issue. If you can find a way to start convincing people, like, I know you love this thing, man. I know you think it's this beautiful little Himalayan toilet paper playing cat. I know you think this is, this is wonderful. I know you think this is security. I know you think this is safety. I know you think this is a roof over your kid and food for your kids and, and dentures for your toddlers. I, I, I know you, there's all these wonderful things that you think the welfare state is in the same way that a cocaine addict thinks that that little white powder is not only the basis for great stick songs, but also your friend. But it's not your friend. It's eating you alive from the inside out. And if people can look at that, at the welfare state, and say, this was a terrible idea. This has decayed our civilization, destroyed our families, undone our neighborhoods, and made us a giant magnet for everyone with a cell phone and some legs to walk to come in from all over the world. This was a bad idea, and we must undo it. Now, if you can undo the welfare state and the coercive redistribution of wealth, then the people who want to stay and can contribute to society will stay and contribute to society. I don't care what color they are. I don't care where they've come from. If they can't, again, I don't care where they come from. <laughs> if they can't, then they'll leave. It's the way things work. You know, if, if you're in the Rockettes and you can do a high kick and do all of that complicated dance moves, I'm just, I, I saw them once, that's a pretty good show. But um, if you can't, then you don't get to stay. And we have to get back to that kind of freedom and responsibility. Because if we won't resurrect our thirst for freedom and responsibility and community, 
If there's no welfare state, people will still help each other. They'll just actually help each other rather than surrender money to the government and just think that everything's been solved when everything's in fact been made worse. So forget about all this homogeneity and this and that and the other. You cannot reestablish, even if I thought it was a great goal, you cannot reestablish homogeneity without unbelievable amounts of blood and violence. And I think it would happen naturally without the state, because like I touched on a little bit earlier, uh, people want to and tend to form intentional homogeneous homogeneous uh, i can't say the word you know what i mean yeah, yeah. communities because it just creates it's more efficient. positive social outcomes it's because we don't live forever and we can't learn everyone else's language and culture and religion and offense and jokes and humor i mean you, you can't so i mean if there's if there's a little italy here and there's a little bangladesh there and there's a little wherever they i mean it's fine it's fine you know go enjoy your culture maybe come dip into mine i'll go enjoy your culture it's fine just no coercion no coercion, no centralized agency that controls how this plays out and gives vast amounts of power to one group versus another. Either regain freedom or everything's going to get worse. And if we focus on immigrant groups and we think that that is the problem, we are missing it. They are not the problem. The problem is ourselves. The problem is that our ancestors fought for freedom of the state. And then a generation after women got the vote, we just sold it right back again then, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's all true. So, it, yeah, I totally agree with you. It is the state that is the root of uh, all evils. <laughs> no, no, way. no. Oh, my God, Jordan. <laughs> is this like getting you to connect with this? is insane. I'm like trying to push two giant magnets. Opposing magnets together. They touch and fly apart. You're now saying the state is the problem. What if I said? And you don't have to agree with me. I just just at least like you to understand what I'm saying, even if you disagree with me. Because when you repeat back to me what you think I've said, it's not what I've said. What did I say the problem is? The problem is that the state facilitates the... uh... No! (laughs) The state is another symptom. It's like the media. It's like migrants. It's a symptom. What is the problem? Well, people not being informed of the fact that uh, of Western immorality, as you put it. Of um, it's the individual, you know, co- it's the individual, yeah, it's the individual of- who turns away from facts and arguments and reality. It's the people who scream racism and front the media with who, who then uses it to promote lo- lies and investigate more conversations and so on. It's each individual who is the problem. It's the people who want the welfare state because they don't want either personal responsibility or helping those people genuinely in need. I mean, get rid of yep. the welfare state, you open up the solution to people's problems. Right now, the welfare state is not solving anyone's damn problem except for the politicians who want to buy votes and people who want to sell their freedoms in return for a food card. So it is each individual that is the problem. We cannot solve this thing institutionally. You have to solve it at the level of individuals. Once individuals say, no more welfare state, it's destructive, it's destroying our culture, it's destroyed our families, it's destroying our communities, and it's making us a giant magnet for everyone who wants to come and exploit our system, no more welfare state, and I'm going to commit to helping people who need it. Personally. If you go down and bake them a cake, I'm going to go down and help clear their garden. I'm going to go down and watch their kids for an hour while they go look for a job. Oh, I don't know. Get involved. Live as a human community. The selfish atomism of the welfare state and post-welfare state society 
I don't need to get to know the poor. I don't need to help the poor. I don't need to roll my sleeves up. I don't need to do any of that stuff. I'm just going to ship money off to the government and everything's going to be fine. I'm going to be just peachy. No, give up the welfare state and get engaged with people again. It's a joyful, wonderful thing. It really helps people. It brings communities back together. It brings neighbors back together. And it helps us need each other again because the welfare state has made us no longer need each other at all. Now, communities are like an appendix. You just hope it doesn't blow up on you, (laughs) I guess. So, (laughs) sorry, Tucker. I mean, that's not a great joke for you these days. Glad you're feeling better. But um, no, it it is each individual... Are they willing to give up their addiction to the fruits of state power? Are they willing to give up their addiction to the fruits of state power? If they're not, they're the problem. If they are, they're the solution. And it comes down to that individual choice, that individual decision, those individual conversations. And it means enforcing that in your social circle wherever you can. Right. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. I think you're right. Okay, good. I'm going to move on to the next one. Thank you so much for your call. And here's hoping nobody at work listens to this. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a a bit of a problem. All right. Up next, we have Daniel. Daniel wrote in and said, The communist mindset relies heavily on the idea that the rich are only rich because they have stolen it from the poor. The opposition tends to lean towards calling that nonsense because wealth is largely created by adding value. I have for a long time agreed with the latter perspective, but recently, as you've been discussing the effects of IQ on society and how environmental factors can have negative effects on one's general intelligence level, I am begun wondering how much of an impact that has on people's sense that something is missing, namely bits and pieces of the very essence of what it means to be human. With consciousness being such a vital part of what it means to be human, is it possible that the communist mindset is correct in that something has been robbed from the poor and low IQ populations, but it has just been misidentified? That society has indeed taken away from their ability to reach their full potential of their personhood. That's from Daniel. Hey, Daniel. How are you doing tonight? Hey, Stefan. Glad to be here. All right. Do you want to? It's a great. It's a great question. And uh, just, there's anything else you wanted to expand on it? Yeah. Um. Actually, uh, just a couple of quick notes here. Um. After I submitted the question initially, I started to think that my my question really has more to do with the people who are sold the idea of communism, and 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 the ones that buy into it, rather than the people who use it to control others. Um. I can I can easily see how I could have walked down this path and never had a second thought about the validity of it. And and it would have seemed true to me, you know, especially with my public education level critical thinking skills (laughs) at the time. Um, And and the only other thing I wanted to add um, before we get started was, you know, as as the great philosopher and rock star Dexter Holland from The Offspring asked, have you ever felt like there was something more, like someone else was keeping score and what could make you whole was simply out of reach? I'm really, really I'm, disappointed you didn't sing that, but that's all right. It's <laughs> all right. Oh, boy, you wouldn't want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, no, listen, it's, um, it's a great question. And I've been mulling it over this day. People who are not smart, and I, you know, I wish there was a nice way to put it, um, but there is a bell curve of intelligence and people who are not smart. And 
there's things I'm not smart at at all or not particularly good at. I mean, I played violin for 10 years and could probably not even get away with earning more than 50 bucks in a busking session in a subway. But um, there's lots of things that I'm not particularly good at. But I recognize those. And of course, there are things that I'm very good at. So I sort of it, it balances out for me to the point where, you know, my existence is a, a very much a net positive for me. But here's the thing. People who aren't smart, I don't know if they're going to hear that they're not smart. Like if you say to them, they're not smart. I mean, take IQ tests or, or figure things out. Or, you know, the market will give you feedback. The market will give you feedback on how much you're worth and a lot of how much worth your worth has to do with intelligence. This has been really hidden from people, this, this disparities in IQ. And I don't just mean between races and ethnicities, but between genders and even within particular groups. And if we think of all the disastrous decisions that could have been avoided if differences in IQ had been accepted, um, immigration would be very different. We, because there's regression to the mean, right? So if you've got a population like sub-Saharan Africa with an average IQ of 70, then you're going to get some brilliant people coming in from sub-Saharan Africa, but then their kids are going to slide back to, over time, the IQ of, of 70. Now, again, in a free market, that's fine. You know, they, they come in and go out, and it's perfectly fine. But when you have the welfare state, as I talked about before, it's more of a problem. But since intelligence has been scrubbed from everyone's vocabulary. Things have gotten worse and worse. Terrible decisions are being made with regards to immigration. Terrible decisions are being made with regard to income redistribution. Terrible decisions are being made with regards to hatred of the police. Terrible decisions are being made with regard to hatred of white people, which is, I mean, becoming pathological throughout the world. I mean, just, I mean, look at comments uh, on, on anything I do, the touch uh, with race. There's, there's a, a virulent streak and stream of uh, anti-white hatred out there. And I can understand it. I, I can really, I don't sympathize with it. I understand it. Because if no one talks about IQ differences, if no one talks about enthusiasm differences, if no one talks about potential testosterone differences, then of course it makes no sense. You know, there are people who genuinely think that Africa... Sub-Saharan Africa had all of its wealth stolen by colonialism. I mean, they genuinely think that. Sub-Saharan Africa is far richer now than it was before the colonists came along. I mean, they weren't living on $1 a day because there's no concept of currency or really written languages or two-story buildings or the wheel, you know, all the stuff I've talked about before. So when you look, if this differences between ethnicities in terms of intelligence if it's been hidden, then, of course, everyone's going to look at white people and say, well, they're the richest, so they must have been the most assholes in there, right? They must, have, they must have been the meanest. They must have taken the most. They must have stolen the most. And so I understand why there's this anti-white hatred all over the place, because the facts of the matter are kept from people. And so understanding and acceptance of strengths and weaknesses, right? There's no such thing as racial superiority or inferiority. There's just adaptation to local circumstances. So the communists need to inflame hatred among people, between peoples, right? And they work and widen that hatred. And it, it just sorry, go oh, ahead. Sorry. It just it just seems like it's it's such it's so appealing like uh, like for someone who doesn't have the ability to think, you know, 20 steps ahead or even 5 steps ahead, you know, you you've got you're you're delivered this nice basic neatly packaged 
idea that, you know, you're victimized and you've been stolen from and there's the guy over there. He's the one that did this to you. And, and it's it's like if you really feel like something has been stolen from you, if, if you know, on some level in terms of the say the negative effects of spanking on IQ, you know, you actually have had something stolen from you. You just don't know what it is. And to have that packaged for you, it just seems so, so what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, appealing, I guess. For for sure. somebody to, for somebody to just go ahead and grab it and just consider the the thinking work's been done. I've got it figured out. Yeah, I mean Steve Jobs didn't make me poorer. Steve Jobs didn't take anything from me. But the people who did take things from me, because I thought about this in sort of my own history, Daniel. I mean, who who took things from me? Well, my father left. My mother continually opposed my thought processes. You know, she'd give me instructions and I think I would understand them. And she'd get really angry, I mean, sometimes violently angry, when I didn't do what she wanted. And I would say, it's so funny because, you know, you have these grindingly repetitive conversations sometimes in families. And I really resist them (laughs) in my own family. I push back against these highly repetitive conversations because they drive me kind of crazy. But I have the same conversation. My mother would say, why didn't you do this? And I'd say, but I thought, and she'd say, don't think. <laughs> oh. it's, a, it's a good thing I'm not, I'm not spending my entire life pushing back against that narrative now, isn't it? <laughs> don't worry, right. I have the self-knowledge to understand it. I really do. And so what was, uh, what was stolen from me? Well, uh, the teachers, I went to a wide variety of schools as a child. The teachers, I, I, I didn't have one of the hundreds of, maybe, I don't know, 50, 75, 100 teachers I had all the way through grad school. Not one. Re- well, I shouldn't say. Okay, there was one woman who taught me Aristotle a little bit. She helped. But teaching critical thinking, teaching reasoning from first principles, teaching philosophy in any sort of practical, productive way. No. I had to go to an aging Russian woman <laughs> with a smoky voice uh, to to get that from Iron from Ayn Rand and then to more self-knowledge with Nathaniel Brandon and, and others. So you do have things stolen from you. And they're stolen from you by irresponsible, immature parents. They're stolen from you by greedy, destructive, and sometimes tyrannical teachers. And a society as a whole that we all know deep down as kids, society doesn't give a shit about kids. Kids are like hostages for Single moms, well, how is my kid going to eat if I don't have welfare? It's like, so basically, it's just a hostage or a, a kind of farm crop if they get more money for having more kids. Kids are hostages for government teachers to hold them or to mistreat them or to not show up so the parents have to scramble if they both work so that they can get more time off, they can get more pensions, they can get more job security. Children are collateral for politicians. Children are future taxpayers to be used as collateral to borrow against so that you can bribe voters in the present to hold their nose and pretend you're a halfway decent human being and cast their vote for you, not realizing that they made themselves a sordid set of intergenerational Judases in the entire process of selling off the next generation in the greed for the unearned in the here and now. Who cares about kids? I mean... 
the beatings that I received as a child on a regular basis. I lived, I mean, live in a remote farmhouse. I lived in a thin-walled series of apartment buildings right in the center of town. And there were dozens, if not hundreds of people who could hear the beatings and the screamings. And not one of them picked up the phone, either to call my mother. Not one of them knocked on the door and said, hey, what's happening? Anything I can do to help? Not one of them called the police. Not one of them called child services. Not one of them called anything. So for me, I grew up in a society, oh, we care about the kids. It's like, well, I got beat within an inch of my life. Head pounded against metal doors. Like I got beat within an inch of my life, surrounded by my fellow human beings, and not one of them bothered to do a damn thing about it in three different continents and probably seven or eight different apartments. Hundreds and hundreds of people. And then they say, well, you know, we need a welfare state because we really care about people. We really care about people. They don't care. They don't care. Maybe some of them liked hearing those screams. I don't know. Maybe they were sadists around. Maybe they didn't care. Maybe they didn't want to get involved. Ah, I understand all the justifications. But I did say to myself that if I was ever in a position to help people in this realm, that I would never say no to that opportunity because I know what it's like to be attacked in that kind of way among foundational cold-hearted indifference. You know, it's one thing to be taken down by a wolf in the middle of nowhere because you're an idiot out hiking alone. It's quite another thing to be taken down by a wolf in the lineup to a bus, at a bus stop, right? 50 people around. Oh, let me step out of the way, Mr. Wolf. Oh, please don't interrupt my newspaper with your blood splatters. So what really... The way I'm connecting with this right now is I'm sitting there thinking, and this is something that's bothered me for a while. And and I remember sitting at like a state fair and I saw this father getting onto his two kids and it wasn't just a regular, you know, scold or anything like that. He was pretty like I could tell he was drunk. I could tell he was very violent. And the way he was behaving told me that um, I can only imagine how those kids are treated at home. Now, this was, this is bothering me. It has been bothering me uh, periodically over the years. This is before I started listening to your show that I seen this. And I, and I was also uh, in the matrix, so to speak, a very pro-spanking parent, which I've completely changed. Uh, but it bothered to- you, sorry to interrupt, uh, Daniel, but it bothered you what this father was doing even when you were pro-spanking, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Even. Yeah. So you can only imagine how he didn't hit him or anything like that in public, but just the the aggressiveness and the towering over them. It, it took me back to just a number of times in my own childhood where I, I, I experienced that with my father, which, you know, to be fair, has improved since we, we've already come to terms with that. But um, like I said, I can only imagine how it, those kids felt thinking back on it, just like you were saying, where you have all these people standing around. I mean, there was hundreds of people standing around 
and nobody said anything. People were intentionally averting their eyes. I couldn't stop staring myself, but most people were just intentionally kind of avoiding it as if it didn't exist. And it's right there in the middle of everybody. It's like, come on, people. Um, and, and it bothers me. How because old were you I, when I, this happened? Uh, gosh, I was probably 26, um, I would say. And do you know what and that was like for those kids? This probably I, happened every day. And this is why the parents can do what they do, because they know everyone's going to look away. Everyone's going to step around. Everyone's going to step over. They can get away with it because they can do this in broad daylight. They can abuse their kids in broad daylight. No one's going to do a goddamn thing. This is the permission that makes it possible. You are a participant, I hate to say, but it's true. You are a participant, and everyone who ignores this is a participant and an enabler of this type of abuse. I was. And of course, the kids, they look around and they say, well, this is the society that I live in. And this society at one point is going to lecture me to be good, to respect people, to be honorable, to respect property, to not use violence to get the way I want. And it's going to come across as such hollow hypocritical bullshit. If you've not experienced it, it's really hard to know how it looks when society, the society that allowed you to be abused year after year in full public view of everyone, and then the society comes up and says, well, you got to be a good person. you got to be honorable. you got to stand up for the right things in this life. Blah, 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 right? No, Boom! Yeah. <laughs> you just want to, well, deal mm. with it. <laughs> I, I can certainly see how kids like that that are that are coming up in situations like that. Like like I connected with it. I can see how, like taking it back to the original question, is is this this concept of something being taken from you is so appealing and it's so seductive. That was the word I was looking for earlier. Seductive. It allows it you allows- to discharge your hatred of those around you into safer, distant conceptual objects. You know that the the kids you witnessed being abused being treated roughly, being screamed at or yelled at or whatever, they're going to grow up feeling that they were stolen from. They're going to go with a huge amount of resentment and anger towards the people in their society, particularly the people who had more wealth and power who could have done something about what was done to them. And then the communist is going to come along and say, oh, yeah, rich, powerful people, they're your enemies. And it's going to connect with them in a very personal way. And it's going to be alarming, though if it connects with them in a personal way because it threatens personal relationships. And they're going to say, and the real problem you see is not that you were beaten and not that you were abused and not that you were screamed at and not that you were molested and not, and I'm not talking about these kids in general, and not that all these terrible things happened to you. The problem you see is who owns the means of production. And people are like, oh, great, now I have a target to hate. That isn't personal to me anymore. That doesn't threaten my relationships anymore. And now I have some something to hate, a category to hate called the rich, the successful, the productive, the positive, whoever. But now this person who controls the direction of my hate now controls me because my hate is avoidance of what actually happened and who was responsible. And once you can get people to substitute a category for personal abusers, you own them. And then... They become tools of abusers called communists, where before they were victims of abusers called whoever had authority over them. Mm. Yeah, that that's uh, something that, something that's been on my mind uh, quite a bit in terms of raising my own children as well. 
um, because I, I, things things have changed for me and my children. I, I want to again credit uh, my discovery of your show <laughs> with that, and um, your well developed research in that. It actually kind of awakened me, if you will, and it helps tremendously with my relationship with my children. And I wanted to thank you personally for that. I've been waiting quite some time to do just that. Well, thank you. And I appreciate that. Uh, you know, this show could be analogized as a diet book. You're the one who has to put down the ice cream. So I, I really appreciate that. Uh, Daniel is very kind. And I hope that you give yourself an inordinate and healthy amount of praise for that as well. Can, can I, I got one quick story I want to tell you about uh, how this kind of um, manifested, if you will. Um, after I heard your video about the uh, truth about spanking, and I started thinking about it and thinking about it, um, I was sitting down with my son, and we're playing a board game of some sort. I can't remember what the board game was. It's not really critically important to the story. But I remember he started to challenge me on a rule. There was something that I did that was an illegal move, if you will. It was something pretty innocuous. And he started to challenge me on it. And as soon as he, he, he almost started to say, I could tell he started to say something and he just like shut down. He stopped as if he knew better than to challenge me. Like he was afraid of me and it never clicked with me before until I saw this. And I was sitting there thinking, man, that what, what in the world? <laughs> okay. It's okay, bud. You can, you can tell me what happened. You can tell me what the, what the problem was. And he, he just, he was shut down at such a level and where my normal, I guess, uh, my previous normal <laughs> would have been to just slowly escalate and, and eventually kind of force him to tell me what happened, um, or what, what was on his mind. I could see fear. <laughs> like I didn't. I didn't like it. I. I, I hated it because I, I realized I can't use this tool anymore. I need to. I need to get this answer out of him, and and get him to. I want him to feel comfortable talking to me and and feel free to challenge me, without fear of retribution that I'm going to punish him or get onto him or you know, be angry with him and and I never really considered that that was the uh, an effect I was having on him. I thought I was just doing it the way everybody else did it. That was just how it was done. It was how I was raised. It's how people do it. And it took me another 45 minutes for him to finally, you know, of just talking to him and trying to, you know, figure it out. And it was a 45 minutes well spent because I feel like we moved, we, we did move forward and he finally did tell me what the move was. And I was like, okay, I get it. That's, that's awesome. I, I appreciate, I, I pointed out, I appreciate him challenging me on that and that it's okay if he does that. I'm, I'm not going to get mad at him anymore. And I, and I have apologized to him like profusely and, and all my children for that matter. And for they, that. they love you all the more for it, right? Uh, dude, I'm, t uh, <laughs> dude, that's really eloquent. Anyway. Yeah. Um, over the whole course of it's been, gosh, it's been a few years since I've started doing this and the relationship with my kids versus the relationship I see other parents and their children is night and day, like no joke, night and day. I get along with them so well. We have such a great time. Um, we talk to each other. Um, I, I can't even 
I can't even begin to tell you the amounts of changes have happened. I can, I can still see the effects of what happened before. And we're still working through that. I can still see it. I, I don't think they really connect that that's what's going on. Oh, before when you were not as gentle or curious? When I, yeah, when yeah. I was very authoritarian in my parenting and pro-spanking and that kind of thing. I can, I can see some apprehension and, and, and things, but, you know, especially with my son, because I don't, I don't understand why, but for some reason, as a, as a father, I'm harder on my son than I am on my daughters. I don't, I don't, that one I'm still trying to figure out is why that is. And I, I have some pretty good ideas why, and I think it has a lot to do with the, how hard my father was on me, but that is something I'm still working on. But overall, it has been a, a an incredible change. Like, I, I can't even begin to tell you how different our relationship is since that. That's great. That's, it's wonderful to hear. It's wonderful to hear. And some of you being harsher on your son than your daughter may have to do with the fact that your son is going to have to compete for resources, whereas your daughter is probably only going to have to compete for men to some degree. And so he's going to have to compete for resources by being tough, and she's going to have to compete for men by being charming. So, you know, that, that, that may, it may not just be because of your dad. There may be something more foundational and biological to it. But, yeah, you should call back in if you want to about that because it's a great, a great question. And um, so, you know, it's, it's wonderful to hear. And you apologize to your kids. Everyone thinks, well, they got to respect me. It's like, you know how hard it is to respect people who just don't apologize when they've done something wrong? They don't look strong. Those people don't look strong. They look very weak and brittle and petty and ridiculous. And they look like more than half children themselves. So an honest apology for when you've done wrong uh, is not a sign of weakness. Now, idiots and weak people will try to interpret it and make you feel like it's a sign of weakness because they don't want to see what a strong action it is, to just be honest. And of course, if you've done someone wrong and you don't apologize, you can't then ask them to own responsibility for their own actions. And that's what we want to transfer to our kids. But it has to be done empirically, not through lectures. So it's wonderful to hear, Daniel. I, I really appreciate the question. I move on move on to the next caller, but thanks so much for calling in. Well, do you, do you mind if I um, give a shout out to my website and stuff? Because I also did start one and just as a result of your calling to do so. I decided I, now was the time to finally start. Do you mind if I just tell people where to find um, Actually, if you want to go to unframeofmind.com, um, we like to have uncomfortable conversations without a condom. That's what we do. <laughs> We're on YouTube and on uh, podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, et cetera, all under Unframe of Mind. And I would be glad to speak with anybody, especially from your audience. Like y- you guys are such a smart crew, man. That's, <laughs> I, lo- I love getting into conversations with you, with you folks. So that all would right. be amazing. Well, thanks, Daniel. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk again. It's fantastic. Take care. All right. Up next, we have Dominic. Dominic wrote in and said, people say do not do business with friends. What advice can you give someone who is planning and starting a business with a friend? Are there any benefits? What are the negatives? How do you keep the relationships separate? That's from Dominic. Hey, Dominic. How you doing? Stefan, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm can well. you hear me all right? Yeah, yeah. You sound, you sound fine. All right. All right. How long have you known your friend for? Um, since I was like five, so probably over, definitely over 20 years. And do you share values? We actually do. Um, so I just quick thing, um, I've listened to your show probably for like, I definitely over six years. Um, I've actually, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, 
I usually debate, like I was always argumentative and debated with people and whatnot, including my parents. Um, and until I listened to your show, you kind of put things into perfect perspective for me where, um, it was at the point where I felt alienated, where I didn't like, I didn't have any moral compass and I didn't have any principles and I wasn't very religious. So with the non-aggression principle, the anti-spanking, you put every, everything into like sense for me, I started following these principles. And when you say like me and my friend, do we share the same principles? He I introduced what you showed me to him, and he's actually adapted a lot of these uh, same principles. Fantastic. Sorry. Because if you know, if you have shared values, it relationships just become so much easier. I mean, and, and really it, that to me is the foundation to uh, to relationships. You know, I mean, I've I've met some people through this uh, show. And um, some sometimes we've become uh, friends and uh, never been any real problems. Never been any real problems. Some people I've known through the show for like, let's see now, six, seven, eight years. I mean, Mike and I met through the show. And um, as long as I don't disagree with him, it's fine. <laughs> but uh, it's if you have the same values, it's so much easier. And if you don't have the same values... You know, I mean, I, I've been in business with family before and didn't work out. Well, it worked out for quite a while and then really didn't work out. But that's not because it was family. It's because it was uh, not a, a lack of shared values. So uh, so if you, again, I don't, mean, I, don't, I don't have a huge answer for this. If you're comfortable with the fact that you share rational, empirical, objective values. And I was going to ask, you know, does he listen to this show? Because that's kind of important. Not that you have the show in common, but you have the values that we talk about in the show in common, which, of course, is the way to resolve. You're going to have disputes. You're going to have disagreements with your friend. Are there going to be times when you really don't like each other in, in moments? And there are going to be times when one of you convinces the other that you should go this way. And this way turns out to be a disaster. And you're going to have, you know, the other person's going to have the temptation to say, you dragged me in. Like, but as long as you have self-ownership, self-responsibility, and uh, an objective way of uh, figuring out how things are going to go, that's that's the best you can get in any kind of relationship, uh, whether it is uh, you know a marriage or or a friendship or a business relationship or any or or anything like that. So, I would say if the values are in sync, you can't ask for more. Yeah, I agree, and it like um. It's evolved. So in the beginning, it wasn't a business. It, it was um, me helping him, doing him favors. And then, and, I, and like, if you want to, I can go into details. But then eventually I'm saying, you should do this. You should do this. This would make it even better. And I could see the potential in what he's already started. However, um, like, I, I'll just give like an example. Like, he didn't have a website. And me like um i say you need to have a website you need to have a website you have to put this content on a website he's very into social media he would push back against me disagreeing and um eventually what ended up happening was i just made it myself said fuck it i'm doing it myself and he fell in love with it to the point where it became a major part of his business and, um, and uh, what he used to do was, and he still does, is music. He was an entertainer. He makes music and whatnot, and he was in a band, and he didn't have a website. So we pushed the website. Um, and then it got to the point where instead of me helping him, I actually became invested in what he was doing um, 
with like my time. Like I would give him ideas and I would help him implement it. So like the website, like I did the website all by myself. Like and he gave me a lot of pushback. He said it's a lot of work. Um, and um, are you willing to do it? Like he said, he told me just do it yourself. So I said, all right. But then it becomes to the point where I wasn't getting paid by him. I was doing favors where I said, hey, listen, if I start taking on these additional responsibilities and helping you and I'm not getting paid, I I want 50 percent ownership. Like we're going to turn this into a business and I want 50 percent, which he agreed to. Um, And this is like six months ago. Fast forward to like recently, which we we got to a big dispute and it's a. since he's my he's getting married soon this year and I'm in the wedding, I'm in the bachelor party and all this stuff. And we just got into a really serious conflict where our relationship, our personal relationship, not the business has suffered. Like the things we used to do as friends, we don't do anymore. And this is what I mean between um, business relationships and personal relationships, because we do have disagreements and he knows how I am. I'm very. um reason and evidence-based facts i need the facts right um and i don't have access to um finances so eventually now that it's been a year and i've invested a lot of time like i i he asked me to do videos i have zero okay so i'm i'm sorry i'm sorry to interrupt you but if you're going to start getting into the nitty-gritty of the business i'm afraid we moved a little bit beyond the philosophy show aspect of things so uh, I just wanted to sort of reiterate that uh, if you share the same values and you're willing to stick with those values to have self-ownership, you know, when you're in a partnership, you're still 100% you. You're going to want to blame your partner at times for things, but if you your partner convinces you to do something, you're still 100% responsible for being convinced and, and going along with that. So as long as you're willing to retain reason, evidence, and self-ownership, um, then that's the best shot that you've got. So I hope that helps. Thanks very much for the call, but I'm going to move on to the next caller. And I certainly wish you the very, very best of luck, Dominic, with your venture. Thank you. Thanks, man. All right, up next, we have Vouter. He wrote in and said, Stefan has mentioned that his writing a book about ethics is an admission he knew nothing about ethics. I don't understand this at all and have several arguments for the opposite being true. One, knowing much about a subject means you are more likely to be asked about that subject. Many such people will create websites or videos about that subject so people won't have to bother them for that information anymore. A book is the ultimate permanent source of information meaning you probably have a lot to say about the subject and have a high degree of certainty. Two, knowing more about a subject puts you at a huge advantage when researching a subject. Why would the person who needs to do the most research know the least, where to look, go for writing a book? Three, people write books to establish authority on a subject or to change the world because they think they know better than other people on a subject, having something to say, If you don't know anything about a subject, you should read about it, rather than telling other people what's going on. Four. When you say writing a book about ethics means you don't know anything about ethics, we can deduce that you're also meaning to say that people who haven't written a book about ethics at least know something about ethics. This goes against Stefan's own worldview. He often says that society isn't following ethics, beating kids, government power, etc. I haven't written a book about cooking. Does that mean I know plenty about cooking? Almost everyone hasn't written a book at all. Are those people all all knowing? That's from Vouter. Vouter, is that right? Did I get that right? Yes. All right. How are you doing tonight? Good. Good. Uh, did I say I knew nothing about ethics or that 
I didn't have solid arguments for the root of ethics. I mean, I, I don't think I would have said I knew nothing about ethics whatsoever. Okay, well, I thought you did say that, but and um, and there was certainly the idea that if you know uh, less about something, then you are more likely to write a book about it. Wait, so do you think the argument I was making is that if you know less about something, you're more likely to write a book about it? Because yes, that's that's on, what I on. got from it. I mean, but do you do you think this through before you? I'm just curious if you think this it, stuff it, through. And no, the reason I'm asking. Make, and then, hang yeah. on, hang on. Let's not both do this thing where we talk at the same time. Okay, let me let me finish my thought, and then you go ahead with yours. All right? Because let me ask you this: How many things, Vouter, do you not know much about? Plenty. Wouldn't it be like me, nearly infinite? Yes. Okay. Are you planning on writing a book? about a near infinity of topics or writing books, a near infinity of books about a near infinity of topics? No. Okay. So do you understand the problem if you say, well, if you don't know much about a subject, you're, gonna, you're more likely to write a book about it. It doesn't stand up to even a moment's intellectual scrutiny. So I'm kind of curious what you mean by it. Yeah, and I didn't understand why you made that argument. The arguments that you think I might have made. Do, do you think yes. I ever said... That if you don't know, the less you know about a topic, the more you're going to want to write a book about it. I mean, that that's an argument that makes no sense, right? Yes, you said um, uh, writing a book is an admission that you didn't know what you were talking about when it come, when it came to ethics. Writing a book is an admission. Oh, no, okay. I, I mean, I, I remember the argument that I've made, which is... That, uh, you know, people say, oh, you know, Steph, you're so arrogant. You wrote a book. You think you've solved the eternal problem uh, that has plagued philosophy. How do you have morality without God and without the state and so on? It's so arrogant. It's like, no, if I write a book about ethics, it's because there's something I really don't understand about ethics. And I need to write a book to to work it through. So the, it's not that if I don't know something about a topic, I have to write a book about it. I mean, that's not because, again, there's. And near infinity of topics I don't know much about or, or anything about, really. And I'm not going to write a book about a near infinity of topics. I don't know the best methodology for translating ancient, Amer ancient uh, Hebrew uh, into modern uh, Sanskrit. Right? <laughs> I, but I'm not going to write a book about it because I don't think it's that important. It, it may be to some people, certainly not that important to me. And certainly in realms of philosophy, I don't think it's that important as well. So... In terms of my argument, I wrote a book about ethics because I needed to organize my thoughts about ethics. Now, it wasn't that I didn't know anything about ethics before, right? So let, let me give you an example. So let's say I'm a baseball player. I'm a really good baseball player, and I can throw a wicked curveball, like something that breaks the sound barrier and blows a hole in people's gloves or whatever, right? Now, it's not like I don't know anything about throwing a ball. I'm very good at throwing a ball. But if I then become a physicist and study how baseballs are thrown, and then I write a book about all the physics of it, I can say I didn't really understand how, down to the level of physics, a ball was thrown before. But that doesn't mean I didn't know anything about throwing a ball. Does that make any sense? Yeah, okay. And uh, um, yeah, uh, I, I would say that there's a, a lot of other ways to work through an idea you could have conversations and uh, comments on websites and i don't see why writing a book 
would be the best method. But yeah. wait, you don't understand the value of writing a book? Is, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean. Do you, do you not understand the value of books as a whole, or I don't quite follow? Yeah, but if you if you um, if you have to work through an argument, why why would a writing a book be a, a good method of doing that? I don't understand that. Do you want me to explain to you the value of human literacy or organizing ideas into syllogistical or coherent uh, formats? I'm not sure what you mean. Yeah, but you, I, like think, the fact I think that, that people can the fact that people can underline and write notes and reread and and really absorb that. I don't know. Are you? You do. You want me to ex explain the value of human literacy and writing things down? Like I don't quite understand. No, but I think that comes after you have a wealth of knowledge about the subject. What do you mean after you have a wealth of knowledge about a subject? Like after you've studied it and discussed it with a lot of people. Well, do you think I hadn't like studied my, philosophy and ethics and talked about it with a lot of people when I wrote my book on ethics? I'm not, I'm, sure, well, yeah, I'm just but, not sure where you're you, coming from here. Yeah, but, but you did know a lot of, about ethics. That's why you were able to write a good book about it, I think. Well, but I didn't write a book just to codify everything I already knew. I wrote a book also to introduce new arguments and new examples and to make sure that I knew it all in the right way, that I had a very solid foundation for secular ethics. But you discussed those arguments before putting them in a book format, right? Right, and putting them all together in one format was a wonderful way to help people understand the arguments that I was putting forward. And the reason, okay. one of the reasons I wrote the book was that I kept having conversations about UPB and explaining it, and people still didn't understand it. Now, that either meant I wasn't being a good communicator or there wasn't a way that they could understand it through language or, you know, the reason I wrote the book was I kept having these conversations and people wouldn't understand it and then they'd push back against it and then we'd have another conversation on call-in shows or, or whatever. Or, or I'd write little rebuttals on the message board. I guess like, no, I need to put it all together in one place. And so um, when I put the book together, this is the book, people can check it out, Universally Preferable Behavior, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics, available at freedomainradio.com slash free. I put the book together so that there was one place that I could say to people, okay, if you don't understand UPB, go read this book. <laughs> Right, And then if you have questions, you can come back to me with your questions. But that's how you make knowledge transfer more efficient rather than saying, well, it was on the third call in this podcast and then it was on the fourth call of this podcast two months later and then there's this. It was scattered all over the place, right? There's this message board post and then there's this article uh, on a website and you know, then I did one solo cast and you know, then I did an interpretive dance, mind move about all of that. So just putting it all together in one place is a way for me to communicate as best as I could the ideas behind uh, the arguments and the arguments themselves. And then when people want to call in, I can say, read this book first. This has as much as I could put together, um, as rationally as I could put it together. And then if they don't bother reading the book, they don't care that much about it. If they read the book and it answers their questions, it's been very efficient. If they read the book and they it doesn't answer their questions, then there's one of two possibilities. Either they don't understand the book, and we've had calls with people who haven't done that, or the book has a mistake or an error in it, or something that could be explained better and so on, which I've had some of those uh, as well. And there's going to be a UPB 2.0 uh, at some point when I have time. And so that's why I put the book 
uh, together, but it was a confession that there were things that I still needed to work out in my presentation. And in writing the book, I learned more about how to better argue for my position. So that's the idea. Okay, thanks. Then I understand your position. Excellent. All right, well, let's move on to the next caller. I really appreciate you calling in. Thank you. Yeah, bye. Okay, up next we have Logan. Logan wrote in and said, Many young people, including myself, have run into the issue of choice paralysis when it comes to a long-term career. This combined with the lie of just follow your dreams that they spoon-feed to students in schools and the breakdown of the nuclear family support system leaves many teenagers and young adults in an array of paths with little to no direction. The issue seems to be more present in the modern day than in generations long since past. Is it caution or coddling by our parents that has stunted our ability to be successful? Is it the lack of training or knowledge of the adult world? Is it the habitual or addictive nature of present-day entertainment that we pour hours upon hours into? Or is it something simpler than it appears? What can we as millennials do to cure or stunt the growth of our choice paralysis in the modern day and prevent it from greatly affecting our future children? That's from Logan. Hey, Logan. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Steph. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Hopefully doing good as well. So, yeah, tell me, tell me where, what is the status of the climb every mountain, just follow your dreams? Where is that these days in school? Is it kind of everywhere? Just believe. I mean, what's it coming across? <laughs> well, it's pretty much at every level. I've I've been churned through the college system like everybody else, a basic state school. And um, when I got out, you know, they they told you the entire way, you know, like, oh, if you do this, you're going to be great. Just be passionate. Just be, you know, believing in what you believe in and you'll do fine. And when you get out, it's like, no, that's not how the world works at all. Have fun with that. <laughs> and um, so um, I've for the past two years, I've been floundering about trying to recollect myself and adjust to the adult world. And over those course of the two years, I've, I've talked to people, discussed the issue, and I've found that a lot of people are in the same place I am. Not, you know, you, you pass the successful people that, you know, get into careers, maybe by chance or by people they know, or maybe they've worked their way up to it. But, um, it, it can be fairly, um, demoralizing sometimes to, uh, you know, when you, when you go through the system to come out of it and go, oh, wow, I've been kind of lied to my whole life and I've been working so hard to get to this point And now I have to basically start over. <laughs> um, but maybe, that's how the adult world is. And I, and I wanted to get your opinion on that. If, you know, from somebody older than myself, I, um, I wanted to hear out your opinion. And, you know, I, I know you've gone through many degrees uh, in college and many careers um, after I've heard you from um, being on your, after I've heard you uh, through your show. So uh, what, what's your opinion on the matter? Do you think that, uh, do you think it's a problem with my generation uh, in particular, or do you think it's more cross-generational? Right. Um, let's, I guess, start with that. Is your family wealthy? Um, we're middle class. I, I grew up in a suburb. Um, uh, I, I grew up fairly, fairly, fairly well off. I, I won't say that I was rich by any means. I wasn't more rich than anyone else in my neighborhood. No, but um, rich compared to the average of human history or average across the world, you're like in the top 
one hundredth of one percent, I would assume. And not calling you like super rich, but you know, I mean, yeah, compared to Bill Gates or you know, we're all poor, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, I mean, compared <laughs> to human history and across the world, y'all had some resources, right? Yeah, yeah, right. And when did you get your first job? Um, I got my first job at the age of fourteen. Um, when, when I became a, a little league umpire <laughs> of all things. Seriously? Yeah. That, that's a job? <laughs> yep. I don't and mean they, to diss you, man, but that sounds like a little bit of a hobby, <laughs> but all right. Little league it, umpire. Okay. I, I mean, I, I, I played baseball for, you know, a lot of my youth and I, I knew that man. That's that. why I did the baseball analogy in the last <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't, so go ahead. <laughs> Saw right through me. Um but uh I and I will agree with that. It wasn't it, it was more of like, oh, you pick your pick your schedule, do whatever the games you want, you get paid like, you know, fifteen dollars a game. Um, okay, when did sorry, I should rephrase that. When did you get your first real job? <laughs> that's <laughs> I guess I should have answered from that rap point instead. Um when I first uh Moved away to college. I got my first job working as a salesman um, at a retail store. And how old were you? Like 18, 19? 18, yeah. 18. 18. And were you kind of an eat what you kill? Like you, you, were you on salary commission? How did that work? Um, I was on hourly, actually. And you made commission on specific products that were of high value in the store. Right, 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 right. Okay, okay. And is your parents' house, house worth a lot? There, there is a rhyme and reason to these questions, and I'm sorry to probe, and you don't have to answer anything no, no, you don't want to. But. No, no, it's, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable at, um, answering most questions, actually. Yeah. Um, well, the problem is answering, I guess my childhood home was, was um, worth a, a good amount of the time I I. I could give you a ballpark answer, but I couldn't give you an exact number. But that house is gone. Um, uh, my parents uh, got divorced as soon as I left for college. Really? Yes. Really? Okay. Bookmark. We shall return. But uh, yeah, I on. figured. I figured you would come back to that point. Um. So um, yeah. The if I if I had to guess with if I had to take a stab at it. It was probably worth around uh, three hundred thousand. No, 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 not in your childhood home. Like, what? I guess oh. they've gone through asset mitosis, right? So they <laughs> they sort everything into thirds. <laughs> the parents got a third each, and then the lawyers got a third. Yeah, something. something All right, so like that. I, there's yeah. been a bit of a diminishment of the family fortunes. Is that a way to put it? Yes. Um, uh, I. Through my college life, I was solely supported by my dad. Um, he was the one bringing in the income in, in our when we when the family was together, and um, he made a good sum of money. But uh, uh, my mom walked away with most of it, and he tried his best to support me through college. And I did my best as soon as I got up or got to where I was. Um, as soon as I moved out and went to college to get a job and start funding myself, because I knew that. Um, I, I was going to have to start doing that. I was going to have to be independent in that regard. Right. So your dad worked his whole life to accumulate resources 
And your mum used the court system to pick him clean like a Brahmin cow and an Amazonian piranha fish. That, right? That is absolutely correct, yes. Do you think that that might have had just a little bit of an impact on your ambition to get ahead? I have come across that point many times, and it's actually your show that has brought me to sort of that conclusion on how much um, the divorce influenced my choices throughout my college career. You've and not that the I, Serpico story, right? Uh, remind me of it. Right. I, I can't remember at the memory. Serpico, uh, it's a movie. With a young Al Pacino about a guy who takes on a corrupt police force. He's a cop. Now, this guy, I mean, he was dragged to hell and back. He took a bullet in the line of duty. I mean, he just worked like a dog and got shot and recovered. And and he retired. He got a pension. And then his wife divorced him, took him to court, and she got his pension. So he had to walk the main streets, get shot, take down criminals, take on an entire corrupt police department, and almost get killed six different ways from Sunday. But all his wife had to do was have sex with him for a while and divorce him, and she got the entire pension. (sighs) It sounds like a... As weird as this... uh, Maybe not as weird, I guess. I'm sure you've heard many stories, but um, it it sounds like a normalcy in, in... my generation in particular nowadays the or i mean at least our my parents our parents generation giving us as kids seeing that result it yeah. uh, it's a common occurrence i could work really hard get up early defer gratification work into the night i could take on all the stress and difficulty of advancing my career And then some woman could just carve it all off with a giant legal knife and walk away into the sunset with the whole damn lot of it. Why? Because vagina. Vagina ATM for the win. (laughs) And uh, it's a little tough. You know, basically, if you knew that the communist revolution was coming in 1917 and the government was going to take your factory anyway, would you work really hard to create a factory in Russia? I don't think you would. Because why, why do men accumulate resources? You know what a man needs to live in. I mean, if it was up to men, we'd still be living in caves. It's true. We would have developed high-definition televisions and amazing sound systems. But we'd still be living in <laughs> caves otherwise. Men accumulate resources to attract a high-quality woman and to provide for his family. That's the seat and root and driving force of male ambition. Right? That's why right. men fight hard to to get the best woman, and to provide for your family. Now, if women can use a man's ambition to get all of his stuff together and make all of this stuff, if women can use the court system to strip it off him, like they're pulling skin off a heretic, well, it's kind of hard to say, I'm going to accumulate all of this stuff. Logan, how much money, let's say you don't get married, Mm -hmm. how much money do you need to have a reasonably happy life? Give me, give me a ballpark annual. A ballpark annual. Um, gosh, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't really need much. So, I mean, at most, I, I would, I would ask for maybe sixty thousand, fifty thousand, like yeah. best, best answer. And that I, may be I, even I, more than you need. Yeah, definitely. That's living super lavishly, in my opinion. I, you know, I when I was a student, I got by on six hundred bucks a month. <laughs> I did. That, that's 
That's that's crazy to hear just because of the area I live in, but oh well, no, my listen, God. I, I lived in an expensive I lived in an expensive neighborhood. But I I had a little expensive? I had a little room in a house with four gay guys and a lesbian. Boy, it was a really tidy place, except for the lesbian room. <laughs> that was messy as hell. But um I, I it was two hundred and seventy bucks for everything, like like internet and, and utilities. And it's just a little room in a house. No cell phones, no nothing like that. I, I biked everywhere, didn't even have a bus pass, cooked a lot, big vats of pasta, big vats of vegetables, big soups, you know, just so you can carve stuff. I, I almost never ate out. And when I did, I could, I'd literally go to this, the, the, uh, the student newspaper. You would have two-for-one coupons for a subway shop. And, you know, I'd go, you know, eat one, freeze the other. <laughs> you know, all the, you can really live on very little. It's amazing how much ramen noodles you can fit into a balding head. It really is quite astonishing. And so you can, and I, you know, it's pretty good life. I mean, you don't want to be raising a family <laughs> on that particular way of doing things. Right. But uh, I wasn't sitting there like, oh, man, if I only had a hat, you know? I mean, I worked in right. the summers. I pulled money in and, uh, you know, I had a little 386 notebook <laughs> back in the day. And, man, it was a disaster. I was in a bank. It fell, broke the backlight, cost me 200 bucks. Boy, back, that's back when 200, 200 bucks. Oh, no, now I can't eat for June. <laughs> I have to go to people's friends. I go to friends' parents' houses and just be hungry and hope that they notice, right? Hey, given that you're chewing on the tablecloth, would you like some soup? So, no, God, you could live. And I'm talking like no dating. Like if you just wanted to do your thing, you know, travel a little bit, you know, have a reasonably comfortable little place or whatever. I mean, you don't need much, right? I mean, if you live in a city, you really don't need a car. In fact, a car is just a pain in the ass, right? So I'm just saying you could get by on not much. I mean, I think, honestly, sure. if, you had, if you got two grand a month after taxes, you know, you're not living lavishly, but it's pretty comfortable. Yeah, agreed. And, and at the job I, I do now, um, I, I I make a very comfortable living with the the place that I've set myself up with and despite the area that I live in. So it it, it it's worked out very well for me as, you know, a <laughs> it's worked out very well for me as a single individual white male. Yeah, and you can get some roommates. Sense. I mean, who doesn't like to come home from a hard day at work to a masturbating Welshman? I mean, come on. You get <laughs> your basic roommate situation. I mean, I've been without, you know, parental um, support since I was 15 and, you know, I just took in roommates and, and worked a bunch of jobs. And, you know, I, I'm not saying, it, I don't want to say it's blasé like it was just so much fun, but, you know, you can make things happen. And so we live, like a lot of young men in particular, live in this world of random family court theft. They've seen it. They've seen how, I mean, how did it affect your father? Oh man. Um, well, it was really rough for a while and he did. I mean, there's, there's one thing that I take away from my dad more than anything else. And he values his family more than anyone, despite that. And more importantly, he values his kids more than anybody else. Wait, 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 so wait, wait. When, he values his wife who took all this stuff from him? Oh no 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 no! Sorry. When when the family's together, obviously. No, he no, he was he values he his kids. He survived his right. wife. Yes, exactly. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I understood what the word family meant. No, there, no, but... we're, we are we are not that that is not the situation going. I'm, on. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I just I just no, want to be no. clear on what's going down. No, I I, I understand. Um, well, and, and 
to 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 make a very long, very hard story short, because I'm sure it it's going to sound much like the same through how a lot of fathers have gone through in this age. Um, he lost pretty much everything and was homeless. He was sleeping on his best friend's couch in my hometown, and I couldn't do anything to help him um, because he was figuring out how to get his life back on track. But and if you owe, uh, you, and you owe, and you miss a payment, you can go straight to jail, and then your payments yeah. accumulate, and then you got to come out of jail, and you got to try and pay those accumulated payments by trying to get a job, having gone to jail. And not only that, um, my mother, in the time of the divorce, had racked up his credit cards to past the point of um, uh, the ability to. I, I I'm not I'm blanking on the term at the moment, but basically racking up past their limits before before the divorce went through. Wow. Um, he um it it was rough. He lost the house. He he lost the house to her. He he lost everything except <laughs> except his job and. Oh, us. was she? Hang on, was she doing that to rack up her expenses to the point where his alimony was even higher? possibly she's she's um she she knows her way around money i won't deny that she's intelligent in that regard um but uh i i i wouldn't i wouldn't put it past her to do something like that sounds like um, she knows her way around money the way a hunter knows his way around bullets <laughs> yes Yikes. that is ex- somewhat exactly right um but so yeah it but the the thing but even despite all of that, he kept supporting me and my younger sister and even my older brothers were, who were from a different marriage entirely for him. Um, and he did everything Wait, he could to support us. Wait, this was his second us. divorce? Yes. What's with his choices? <laughs> I, I, I've asked that question myself, but I've never asked him in particular. Logan, if you want to free up your ambitions, you might need to understand what happened with your father and his choices <laughs> so that you feel a little more comfortable not making the same ones. Okay. That's, does, that I, make, does that make sense? Like if your father no, chose no, two no. women and got two divorces, you really need to figure out where he went wrong so you don't make the same mistake, right? Because if you make no, the same yeah. mistake, I mean, God, what a nightmare, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, I mean, it, my, my older brothers, my, my one older brother has a family of his own, um, now. And, um, but the people that felt the brunt of this particular divorce was me and my sister and my sister was stuck at home dealing with all of it. Um, she was, um, in, I guess in custody of my mom, I don't even know if that battle even really happened. Wait, wait, wait. Um, but oh, she, your mom had custody of your sister. I I think so. I I I couldn't tell you one way or another, but she stayed with my mom. Um, right. And I I mean, my dad didn't have anywhere to go for the first year, so I I, I don't blame her in that regard. And she was still in high school, so. Um, but anyways, the Do you know what the, the, the precipitating incident was for the divorce. Oh, that's a complicated answer, but I have asked this question to him um, and to my to my mom, but she has given me an answer that I think you've heard a thousand times. And you even said on your show, and I've sat there listening to him like, oh my God, those same words came out of my mom's mouth. 
I mean, you it, it's it's the same for her. It was the same, you know, script as any other, you know, woman who is, you know, divorced a man and taken everything he has. It it's oh, it was his fault. He was cheating on me. I had letters, but I don't really know where they are. Um, Wait, do you he, think she's lying about accusing your father of infidelity? Absolutely, one hundred percent. She because she was committing it herself during the divorce. So she is saying to you, and you think she's lying, Logan. Your father cheated on me. She's disparaging your father to gain points with you about the divorce. That is correct. Oh, gross. That's so and gross. During- I mean, e- even if it was true, yeah. you should never know about it. No, and I I only know my mom was, was cheating on my dad before the divorce was official because I saw some guy that I didn't know walking around, my, walking around outside my house with her at two in the morning. And... It was a it was a traumatic experience for a, a eighteen year old leaving home and a <laughs> lost everything in terms of a family. I mean, I've I've analyzed that through and through for the past five, six, seven years now. I'm sorry, Logan. Can I just interrupt what you're saying? Oh no, go with go all ahead, due please. sympathy. I, I hate to do this, but I just wanted to mention something to parents sure. going through a divorce. Can I can I just mention something no, and tell me if it makes sense please. to you? I, yeah. Okay, pa- parents going through divorce. Shut up. Stop talking to your children. Shut up. They're not your little fucking therapists. They're not your friends. They're not your buddies. They're your kids. Shut up. Stop talking to them about what happened in the marriage. Stop talking to them about your new lovers. Stop talking to them about infidelity. Stop bringing out all of this marital family shit and spreading it all over their fucking cupcakes, okay? Shut up. Stop talking. Go talk to your therapist. Go talk to your lawyer. Okay, no, don't talk to your lawyer. It's too expensive. Go talk to your friends. Do not talk to your children. Do not bring them in to what happened. I don't care if you're 80 and your kids are 60. Shut up. Zip it. Close. Throw away the key. Your kids should not hear it. Now, if your kids come to you with a question, answer honestly. But don't bring this stuff up. And don't let your kids see you walking around with a guy at 2 o'clock in the morning Unless he's 70 years old and it's an emergency plumbing situation. Okay, that's it. You can go ahead. I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> it's, I, I couldn't have said it better myself, honestly. <laughs> um, so w- what I'm getting at here is that I, I don't think – and to answer your question fully as to what happened, um, I don't think I'll ever get – the absolute truth of what happened. I can put pieces together and make my own assumptions. Um, but my, I know that according to my dad and people that I've talked to in the family, um, that my dad did everything to try and put it back together. And my mom refused to fix it. Um, at first it, it started with the reason of, Oh, you ride a motorcycle and you're going to get hurt. and I can't keep dealing with this. And, um, Wait, how long were they married which, for? Um, at the time of the divorce, it was coming up on 20 years. And had he ridden a motorcycle for, I guess, when he was younger, or is this something he just jumped into later in life? 
he jumped into it later in life. Um, he rode motorcycles before, but never like street bikes. It was always dirt bikes and stuff. And he started riding motorcycles, street motorcycles, because the commute to work was atrocious in a car. And he had to drive a truck. So he, in order to cut the commute time in literally half, so he wasn't coming home at like 10 o'clock at night, he decided to ride a motorcycle. And he... And he is a bit of a, a a speed junkie too. So he he goes fast, and sometimes I, I I mean he did get into big accidents, and I I I certainly wasn't happy that he did, even though I I I ride motorcycles myself. But um, I I don't blame him for what he did. I I knew he was thinking of his family in that regard. He wouldn't have done it. I I don't think he would put himself in harm's way like that unless he was, because that's just the type of guy he is. And maybe I'm wrong, but um, what I do know is that this issue wasn't an issue until she made it such a big issue that it caused a divorce. Um, Wait, so and, she divorced him because he rode a motorcycle and got into an accident or two? Yeah, and the, the accident wasn't even immediately before the divorce. I mean, the last accident he had was like, I think when I was 14. Right. So four years prior, three years prior, I mean, so it, it, it really wasn't the motorcycle. No, it wasn't. We we all knew it wasn't the motorcycle. Um, Did she shack and, up with someone else fairly quickly afterwards? That's the thing, um, Stefan. She got married. So they they got divorced in August of. 2011. No, 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 no. Too much detail. I'll just say they got sorry, divorced sorry, in August sorry. of X and go on. So excuse me. Sorry about That's that. Fine. They got they got divorced in August and she remarried in November. Uh August, September, October. Wow. Three to four months. Oh. Fairly safe to say she had a bit of a side piece waiting in the wings. Okay. Yeah, easily. But wait, wait, wait. She got remarried. And the kid's mostly grown. Doesn't that mess up her alimony? I have no. Cl- I have no idea on that. On that regard, um, I. I. I didn't get any of the financial details. Um, and I, I read the the divorce papers um, before I left home, and that was all I saw in terms of finances. Um, afterwards, I. I was so far removed from everything that. Um, I didn't get any information on that, I, and I well, know. I would say try and get some information on that. I mean, I sure as hell hope your dad wasn't giving money to a woman who shacked up with a new guy within months after divorcing him after being married for twenty years. Yeah, <sighs> how's the new guy? The new guy who was happy to sleep with a married woman, we're going to assume, and happy to take in a woman who just bounced out of a twenty-year relationship. And has a daughter living with her who's pretty traumatized, as are all the other kids, and still going through high school. So, how was he? I didn't like him for obvious reasons. Um, I didn't like him as somebody who moved in so quickly and without a second thought and thought that it was okay and tried to play the part that my dad did and failed horribly (laughs) um i refuse to still call him stepfather um because i don't believe he is even if that is true um but 
at you, this oh, point so in you, my, you still have a relationship with your mom, right? Recently, she has reached out and attempted to have a relationship with me, and I have. Um, I'm not criticizing. I just wanted to clarify. Oh no, 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 no! I, 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 I struggled with that for a long time. I shut her out of my life for a long time, um, and then she reached out to me and tried, wanted to have a mother and son relationship again. I said, okay, it, but you know, we're, we're, uh, I, the, uh, this is this is where it gets difficult to explain, but. Um, and this might trudge into a whole other subject, um, but she – my biggest problem with my mom was that she was an alcoholic. Um, and Oh, right. But you see, it was your father's risky motorcycling that was the problem. It, Nothing risky yeah. about being an alcoholic, say. Oh. Yeah. Sorry, and, um, She – Um. She emotionally abused me and my sister when we were growing up. How so? Um, well, um, I'll give you one example. Um, my sister wasn't the cleanest of persons, and so her room was messy one day, and she was about— Wait, You mean tidiest or cleanest? The two things are— or t- Tidiest, okay, excuse okay. me. She wasn't t- so very tidy. So she bathed. Tidy. She just didn't organize her environment. Yeah, yes. Okay, yes, okay. Yes. Um, and— so my mom walked in drunk and she started telling my sister to clean, you know, like you need to clean this room up right now. Like, and, um, and just started the ask the situation started escalating. And my sister kept telling my mom, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. And she wanted her to do it now. And it was like nine o'clock at night. We were just having, we have school tomorrow. And we're we sure your mom was to, obviously drunk in this situation. Very much so. Yes. Right. Yeah. So the whole problem in the household isn't that mom's coming home drunk and yelling at people. The problem is some mess on the floor. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And she yelled at my sister and caused her to cry to the point where she was bawling in her room telling telling my mom to stop. Please stop yelling at me. And so I couldn't uh, – not being able to take it anymore, I jumped out of my room and got in between them and I told my mom to back off. And – she, I, I honestly don't remember the comment because I was just so filled with adrenaline at that point um, that it, it was something snarky about me being an older brother and standing up for my sister. Um, and then she walked out, left my sister alone. But um, I had to do a similar thing to break up a fight between her and my dad close to the divorce um, because they were screaming at a, like, 1130 at each other um and so i i don't know it it it, she she would yell at us me and my sister a lot when she was drinking and when she wasn't it was like a completely different person um but now all i see is the composed person now that i'm older i can feel like i can see for who she truly is Wait, so she, um, sorry, she stopped drinking? No. Even though she claims that she has. Um when I go home, well, home, when I go to her house and have dinner um with her and what what's left of my extended family, um she's she gets drunk every time I go there still. It hasn't stopped. Um but but I will say something. Something 
something maybe to her credit, maybe, and it was drunk. She was drunk the last time I was there. Um, she said that she really messed up during my dad's or during the relationship with my dad. And she's really sorry for it. Um, I don't know if I necessarily believe her in her drunken splendor, but she's never owned up to anything she's ever done like that. Um, even drunk. Um, and I'm not really sure what to make of that. And I know this has gone off fairly off from the original question, but maybe, maybe you have no, that no, in mind. No, it's not at all off. Um, but after seven years, she's finally said something along the lines as if she's owning up to a semblance of what she did to nah, me. Nah, she sister. said it while she was drunk. Mate, if ah. she says it while she's sober to your father... That's different. Was she drunk? How, how much of your childhood was she drunk for? Um, it, was, it was a lot less when I was younger, although there were certain situations that um, I don't feel very comfortable getting into. Um, when I was very young, like five years old, that she – that there were events with her being drunk when I was younger um, that were still – are still – I wouldn't call them – they were more or less scarring on me to the point where I um, don't drink at all. Um, what, where she was verbally abusive or dangerous or? Um, it's going to sound. Again, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. I'm just I can't quite picture. Um, it was. Let me let me let me paint a picture for you, Stefan. Imagine as a five year old young boy, you've I'll, I'll I'll I don't mind telling the story really. Um, this particular one, at least. But imagine as a five-year-old boy, you wake up and your mom is standing in the doorway. It's completely dark and she's not responding to you. She walks over and then collapses on you in the middle of the night. Oh my God, and you can't terrifying. get up because, because her weight is, is too much for me to push her off. So I'm stuck under her for about 30 minutes. And she's dead and drunk, to, like passed out? She, she, she's passed out completely until my dad who has been looking for her found her collapsed on top of me and brought her out of the room and helped me get back to sleep. Of course, as a kid, you think she's either sick or dead or what, right? I honestly didn't even thought, I thought it was a dream for a while, but um, when I talked to my dad about it, he remembers that time vividly. And he told me that they were at a party and, she they she had come home and he was in the bathroom and why did your dad marry a drunk though? I I want to say and and again this before you even say it, I this was probably a question I should ask him. Yeah, no, I mean go ask him. That's sort of return. did your mom ever drive you when she was drunk? Uh, no, no. Okay, that you no. know of. No, that, that that I know of, no. But um, she she never she never drove us around drunk. Um, she never hit us. Um, there was never any physical abuse in my house. Um, but there was a lot of verbal. Um, some people who are uh, drunk, uh, drink, 
and some people who aren't, they have this amazing ability to say, and, and the reason I bring this up is when you talked about how she said something about you being the older brother and protecting, they have this ability to say stuff that's just like, you know, shiv in the chink of the armor. It's just the right thing in the right tone in the right way that's just like, I don't know if she's one of those kinds of drunks. No, she's exactly that. That's absolutely right. 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 Um, she, she gains a very fiery tongue when she's drunk. Vicious, right? Um, yeah, vicious. And it doesn't matter who she's talking to. It could be to anyone. Um, and I've, in the grand scheme of things, I've confronted the issue more or less to a degree um, for a long time. And I don't forgive my mom for what she did, and I never will. Um, there's no amount of therapy that will convince me of that. But and and I don't think I ever should. Um, but if she's willing to try and have a relationship with me, I'm willing to give way on on that as long as I can keep her at arm's length. Okay. If that makes any sense. No, it, it um, makes sense. It makes sense. But I just want to, you know, I whatever decision you make is your decision. Obviously, I don't tell people what to do. But I think it's important to understand the ramifications of this decision, Logan. Okay. Let's say tomorrow you meet the woman of your dreams. I don't know. Are you dating at the moment? Are you? Yes. I, um, I've been dating a girl for about six months. Okay. Seven months now. Is she, would you say she's a mature woman? Yeah. Wise um, and all that? Sure. Yeah. I, 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 sounds, I think. Sounds, that, yeah, sure. It sounds a little <laughs> off the cuff there, brother. Uh. Yes, ish. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think, I, I don't know if I would particularly use the word wise, but she, she knows she's very much a, a mature person who can take care of not only herself, but because um, uh, I, I, I think of this, and I told her when I we got together that I'm, I want to, you know, I. I, I'm in this for a long haul. I want a long-term relationship. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at, for a future with somebody. And I'm, I mean, she was on board with it, and she understands where I'm coming from. And I've, I've been made, I've made very clear. Okay, of what sorry, my, you're just making a bunch of noise here. Sorry, so let's get sorry, back sorry, to, to the sorry. issue. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It happens to all of us. Um, yeah. So let's say that you're thinking at some point in the future of, of marrying her, right? Right. How she, how does she feel about? you getting back in touch and getting back into a relationship with your mom, given that now that's her mom-in-law and she's going to be all over the place, particularly if you have kids, right? Right. Um, which is the goal. Um, yeah. So, because, you see, it's not just you, it's your future and it's everyone in your future who's going to be impacted by your mother, your drunken, verbally abusive mother. Right. How does she feel about it? What does she think? About she's it? she's met my mom once. Um, we we live. I live fairly far apart from my hometown. Um, but sure, I understand all of that, and you can do the distance thing. But trust me, you're still a young man. When parents get older, the pressure to be involved ratchets up. Just and this is true even more for moms who tend to outlive dads by years and years and years. Right. Right. Um. Right now, she may not need that much. What happens when she does? 
you going to ditch it on your sister? Well, you're the girl. You got to take care of the aging mom. My girlfriend isn't fond of her at all. Um, she under she can sympathize with the idea that I I'm trying to have a relationship with my mother, but she also um, can see that it can be damaging in the future. Um, and like 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 you've like you've put out. She's doesn't want to I mean it it she she doesn't want to put a ton of pressure on me or anything about it but she does want me to consider the idea of it might not be a good idea um especially if she keeps in her old habits especially if she hasn't changed at all um and it and I've if I've learned anything it's that people are very 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 difficult to change They'll either change for a minute and go right back to what they're doing or never do it at all. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, because with regards to if you want to if you want to become a father, then who you expose your children to isn't just your personal choice anymore, right? Your children, right. W- when they're born, they have no relationship with your mother. And... That's the decision that you have to make with your social circle. You know, when you become a father, then who your children are exposed to, that's on you. Yes. Right? And I'm just pointing that out. Obviously, your decision is your decision, but uh, you can't expose I'm... your... your you, I don't think you can reasonably or, or morally expose your children to massive bucket loads of drunken, verbally abusive grandma... Because they have no history, they have like they. You don't have the right to inflict that on your kids, if that makes any sense. No, I. I that's a valid point. I, I, looking at looking at it that way, I I agree with you. Because um, you're talking about it in isolation. You know, well, my mother wants this, and I've decided this, and but I'm just saying, if you open that door and and you have kids. Your mom needs to like not be ever drunk around them. She not she needs to not verbally abuse them, and she needs not to verbally abuse you as a father. Certainly, never in front of your kids, because that'll be entirely destructive to your authority. And let's say you go visit her, and she starts screaming at you, whatever. Then you've got to drive back and be a father while you're jangled up from all of this history and so on. It comes down to your kids. You have to do what is best for your kids, what keeps you in the right mindset for being an effective and competent father who's in control, who is worthy of respect, and your kids are going to judge you by the company you keep. If I, if I can pose a, a question for you, Stefan, really quick, and it, it's related to what we, just, we were just talking about. Um, the reason I even gave my mom a chance was actually because of my dad he said that i he, he said that even though i hate your mom and i don't blame you for disliking the person that she is she's still your mom not an argument i yeah I, identification of correct womb holder not an argument so in in 
just to clarify, in your opinion, you don't think that's a, a valid point or an argument at all? Well, it's with, a statement with the, of with, fact. With the threat that she poses. It's a statement of fact that she is your mother. You did not choose her, right? No. Your father chose your mother and hates her. But dad, yeah. that's the mother of your children. That's the wife you chose, you lived with for decades, who gave birth to your flesh and blood. Now he gets to hate her. He chose her. You didn't choose her. Yeah, that's... I mean, tell me if I'm, uh, I'm wrong. This, I no, can't see no, how that's... that goes astray, but I'm certainly happy to hear arguments to the contrary. No, I... I... I'm I'm willing to admit when, um, when I I could potentially be wrong in my way of thinking, and um, I think I I was taping taking his implication of it's your mom as a term of significance as it no it is significant it is significant Logan because she's your mother and had power and authority over you she had the greatest possible responsibility for positive, peaceful, respectful, wise, and mature parenting of you. See, it's funny because people, it sounds to me, tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me, Logan, like your father is saying to you, but she's your mom. Like that imposes some obligation on you. I mean, didn't he ever goddamn well say to her, you're a mom, stop drinking and falling on the children and scaring the shit out of them. You're the mom. Grow up. The obligation yeah. is on the parent, not the child. Because the parent chooses to have a child, the child does not choose the parent. The parent has authority, the child does not. The parent is bigger, the child is smaller. The, chair, the parent has legal authority, the child does not. The parent has freedom, the child does not. The parent can leave the relationship. The child cannot. So because there's this massive power disparity, the obligation, she's your mom. Yes. That means the obligation for good behavior falls infinitely more on her than on you. And by the way, given that you live a long way away now, motherhood is past. You know, these people who say, well, I'll always be your father. It's like, yeah, well, biologically, that's true. But if you always have to remain someone's father, you haven't done a good job as a father. Because <laughs> you're supposed to, they're supposed to grow up. The kids are supposed to grow up and not need you. I hope they want you, you know, I hope that they, I hope my daughter will always want me in her life. But I hope she's not always going to come running to me for advice about everything, because that means I haven't really done a very good job. <laughs> right? So... I but if, if your mom is not, if you're not calling her up for advice and finding her a positive impact in your life and doing all, she's like really important and, you, you know, you, 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 your experience is not complete till you've talk, chatted about with your mom and you always enjoy her perspective and she brings warmth and humor and wisdom and great things to your life and so on. If she just lives a long way away and you haven't talked to her for years, mother is a historical biological relationship, not a current obligation, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes, it does. It does. I Parent, it's a verb, not a noun. <laughs> well, and I, 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 from, from the parenting standpoint, I, I, 
I've I've heard your your talks in other colors, especially on here on 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 the parenting idea, and I've I I I couldn't agree with you more. I I guess I just never I never put two and two together in in my own life. In, in your in father is not parents. talking about your mother, Logan. He's talking about himself. He's trying to create parental obligations to your mom in the hopes of getting the spillover to dad, in my humble opinion. I... <laughs> I... <laughs> I don't have to answer. I'm just telling you it's a possibility. I can't say for sure. I'm just saying what might be possible. Logan, big giant obligation to parent unit. There might be a slight conflict of interest in this advice. It's just a possibility. I just wanted to mention that. So, like, regarding, okay, the follow your dream stuff, (laughs) just believe in yourself. Magic, follow your dreams. That's all girl talk. And that's young, attractive girl talk. You know, like, the world is such a friendly place, (laughs) says the woman who's a 10. It's like, sure is. Because eggs, right? Yeah. So, uh, right. this you know, now that more and more women are are teaching boys and te- and like and and young women, right? The, the teachers and so on, like the the follow your dream stuff. Well, sure, because when you're a young, attractive woman, the world is your oyster, and people throw stuff at you. And like I told the story before, I used to go to a yoga class, and there was this woman in it who was jaw droppingly stunning, like just you know. So I would chat her up and all the chat with her and so on. And, you know, like one day she's like, yeah, I'm thinking of opening a boutique, you know, <laughs> but I'm having trouble finding investors. And part of me, like I'd spoken to this woman, like, I don't know, 10 or 15 times for like a few minutes at a time. And part of me is like, hey, you need investors? <laughs> you know, and it's like, this isn't even an acquaintance. And I had to literally, you know, I had to like whip my dick with a wet towel. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Stop right. spraying money at this woman. It's not how you want to get it, right? And and right. I, like I literally had to bite my tongue. I'm like, I'll, I'll, punch, I'll punch you in the nads, man. I'll do it to myself. I'll, I'll punch you in the nads if you say anything about investing in this woman because she's pretty – like I literally had to force my – because it's like resources must provide resources. We'll have business meetings. And then when we have business meetings and we're planning things, she'll realize what a great guy I am. And egg champion of the world, right? I mean that's <laughs> – you know, that, that's, that's the way it rolls. That's the way, that's the way it right. is. Right. <sighs> So, yeah, so she can say, well, you know, you just, you follow your dreams. You want to become an entrepreneur. Next thing you know, you're an entrepreneur. It's like, well, sure, because eggs. <laughs> but for men, right. it's just a little bit harder than that, right? I mean, if he, you know, right. if you're Steve Wozniak looking for investors and going to yoga class, you're not going to have a whole lot of hot women throwing money at you because you're Steve Wozniak, even though if they were wise, they would. But, um, you know, the follow your dream stuff and just believe and faith, faith in yourself and it will happen. It's like, well, sure. If you're a young, attractive woman, you're operating in an entirely different economic universe than men. Now, maybe if you're some hot guy or whatever, but all that means is you're going to get ass. It doesn't mean you're going to get money. Well, I guess some of them, like if you're a real himbo and you want to become a sugar mommy's plaything or whatever, uh, you know, the life size Ken doll with uh, anatomically incorrect, according to Ken doll genitalia. But for the most, you know, except for like the one in the thousand guys who's that way inclined and that hot and that concerned with their physical appearance and not gay. Uh, but for most men, it's like, yeah, we don't, we don't get that 
kind of greasy slide towards infinite resources that young women experience. And then, of course, when women hit the wall and they, hey, I followed my dreams and now it's a nightmare, <laughs> right? So this lie of follow your dreams does, I think, come a lot from women not, like they confuse their own sexual market value with personal worth. You know, like maybe this woman uh, from the yoga class from many years ago in a galaxy far, far away, maybe she did end up with a whole bunch of cucked up, waiting in line, beta orbiting male investors. And she's like, I just believe in myself. And <laughs> next thing you know, I have a boutique. And it's like, and, and they think that that's, Maybe because they're such great business people. It's like, no, you're a young, attractive woman. Guys want to throw resources at you in the hopes of lassoing an egg or two, right? I mean, so that is not how the world works in reality for men. And so, yeah, the follow your dream stuff. I just, I I don't know why anyone goes to a bar with money. (laughs) You just make so many friends and they'll just buy you drinks. It's like, yeah. Not if you're a guy, they don't, right? I guess unless you're some new ballet dancer at a gay bar just moved into town or the chicken hawks are, right? So, yeah, this this follow your dream stuff, um, you know, m- men don't get the massive geyser of resources sprayed at them, to use a rather unsubtle analogy, uh, that, that young, attractive women do. So women have a lot of this, uh, click your heels three times and you're in the Kansas of riches, right? So... And and look at your mom, right? Your mom didn't work for the money. Uh, no, She's got I, it through the lawyers. I just believed in myself, sued the shit out of your dad, and next thing you know, I had money. And her, I mean, I mean, it. it she's she's well off now, um, because of her new husband as well. Um, it, he he brings home a lot of money too. So right. So yeah. You've got the example of one guy who worked hard and has nothing, your dad, and another mom, like another parent, who was drunk and has ended up wealthy. Drunk, didn't work outside the home, and <laughs> ended up wealthy. Yeah. But you don't have tits, man. At least I hope not. So, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. You don't have the V card. You got to play the P card. And the P card, you turn it over. And it's a whole lot of work. <laughs> Sorry, you don't get the freebies. You do get the self-respect, autonomy, and independence, which does suck a little bit at sometimes, but I think it's worth it in the long run. But you don't get to pay the V card. You didn't win the V lottery. And therefore, you're going to have to work for it. But given that your dad worked for it and enjoyed your mom's, so, enjoyed your mom's company so much, he drove dangerously on a motorbike, <laughs> maybe traction would be better than going home. But um, yeah, I think... Um, the the follow your dream stuff, that's just a, it's a lie that attractive women tell themselves so that they sound more competent to themselves than they are. And some of them are. It's just that it's resources because they're pretty and young and fertile and that's the way it works. So, you know, if you want a family, um, if you if you have a woman who you love and trust enough with your life, because that's the way it works these days, right? In America in particular, I mean, you get divorced. A male suicide rate is not low among men who are divorced. I mean, it is a death sentence at times. And it's certainly a death of sexual market value for a lot of men. Like, hey, I'm 52. I'm living in a car. Would you like to go on a date? Hello? Hello? <laughs> Anyone? 
echo, right? So uh, it is a nightmare existence uh, if you get divorced these days. Now, this doesn't mean you can't get married. I mean, I married and very, very happy with it. But um, you really got to choose well. And in order to choose well, you really got to understand what went wrong in the past, what went wrong with your family. And um, if you if you don't feel like you have enough trustworthy people in your life, particularly your girlfriend, that if you get married, she's never going to do to you what your mom did to your dad, your ambition is not going to activate. You know, why would I want to? It's more painful. It's more painful to have worked hard, made all this money, and then have someone you hate take it all from you. And it's one thing to be robbed blind in an alley of your week's earnings. It's another thing for someone who claimed to love you at one point to scoop out your money through your ass with a giant flaming ice cream cone or scooper thing, right? I mean, that's terrible. You know, that old joke is like, I'm not going to get married next time. I'm just going to go out, find a woman I hate and buy her a house. So that is an awful, awful experience. It destroys not just love in the present, love in the future, but love even in the past. Even the idea of love, you end up thinking you were loved, thinking you were treasured, thinking you were respected. Boom! Cold female hypergamy kicked in. Out comes the money. Out comes the heart. Out comes the future. And and as 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 kids, we, me and my sister, we, I, I understood for a portion of it what was going on, but to be battered around like we were, um, and to really not understand it, and it, it, it was, I, I don't want to try and victimize myself here by any means, but it was, it was hard on us as well. I mean, it, it and I'm not trying to say that my dad's agony was any. Uh, no, no, it was. But or, your dad chose your mom. He's right. causally responsible in the marriage because he chose her. She was drinking when he chose her. She was drinking. I hope she wasn't drinking when she was pregnant. But she no, was drinking. No, no, no. She was it, falling it, on the kids, and your dad had the choice. You didn't. So he, you know, he can kick himself, but you sure as hell would just. It's the ABC, the accidental biological cage, just where you happen to be born. Your father chose. You didn't. So in right. many ways, it was harder on you. Um, I can say with, with certainty um, that uh, the drinking started after um, me and my sister were born. Um, I, I know why it started. Are you telling me um, you're going to try and make the case? And I appreciate you telling me that, Logan. I'm sorry to interrupt sure. you. You're not going to try and make me make the case that your mother didn't have any dysfunction before she drank or before you guys were born. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, good. Uh, okay. No, so no, he no, married no, no. a problematic woman. And, and he either didn't try and stop her from drinking or, I mean, she was stay at home with you guys, right? Uh, for the first 10 years, yes. Um, and then she... And she was drinking. Yes. You know what you can't do when you're a parent? <laughs> you can't drink. I mean, maybe a beer at dinner when your kids are older or whatever, but you just can't drink. What if there's an emergency? What if you got to drive somewhere? What if you really need your wits about you because one of your kids fell down and cracked their heads? You can't drink. Sorry. It's one of the things you give up, like... Like clubbing and shaving. 
You can't drink. So he had a mom who was supposed to be a parent. You're operating the light machinery of childhood. Well, you know, you can't go operate a forklift truck when you're drinking. You can't drive a car and you damn well shouldn't. You can't operate heavy machinery. How about you don't parent when you're drinking? There's a live line of movie I'm sure you've heard before. I can't remember off the top of my head what the name of the movie was called, but it's, you know, you get a license to fish. Parenthood. You, you, like, yeah, parenthood. Thank you. Yes, thank you. You need a license so, to fish. You need a license to have a cat. You need to need a license to own a dog. But any butt-wielding asshole can be a parent. Yeah, that one. It's a yes. great movie. It's a great movie. Um, His head shake in that movie is a thing of beauty. But anyway. <laughs> or the bit at the end. Did we win? Did I win? Anyway, okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, but that, that line rings, rings absolutely true. Yeah. And I guess bringing this all sort of back around, I, I – I I will obviously wouldn't deny that this absolutely I I would never deny that this doesn't contribute at all to the original question. I I think it contributes a lot to it and it's something I've come to but hasn't really I guess it fully accepted it like I have with this conversation. Mhm. It's I mean the I I and I'm sure you've guessed it by now and in college, I, I had no guidance, none, not even from my dad, because mm-hmm. he was too he was too busy fixing his life. And how, how on earth are your parents who've just detonated their own marriage and their own lives and destroyed massive amounts of wealth and traumatized their children? And how how is your dad who chose a woman who's going to within a couple of months get married to some new guy? And how's your mom who did that? How the hell are they going to give you advice with any credibility whatsoever? Yeah, people say, but she's your mom when they have nothing to offer you. I mean, if the only thing that I have to say to my daughter is, but I'm your father, it's like, that's the saddest, most pitiful thing I could say. I will never say that. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cry for authority where they're, where, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to dominate somebody, dominate over somebody when, when, you know, you, you can't make an argument for it. But I was the sperm donor. Come right. on. It, That's all you got? A, you got nothing. It's an association of title. It's trying to imply that it has as much weight as trying to logically talk something out. Yeah. I mean, imagine if there was a universe where, where women who detonated their families because of selfishness never got to see their grandkids. You know, you can't really do much as an individual to reform the family courts. You know, that's there's a whole bunch of legal interests and lawyers and judges and, and women and like all of that. And you can't as an individual. But what if there was a socially imposed cost for detonating your family out of selfishness? What if there was a socially imposed cost? Just theoretically. What if there was ostracism to selfish women who detonated their families for no damn good reason other than perhaps monkey branching up to some other richer guy? Or who, who knows what, right? What if there was social right. cost to that? Would they think twice about it? Oh, you can get all the money if you want. You just can't get anything else. I don't know. I'm a big one for voluntary solutions, and I'm a big one for ostracism where ostracism is due. But, um, and I'm not, you know, maybe your mom's in this category or not. I don't know. But I'm just saying, when you can't reform the state, and none of us have that power to do that individually, but you can't reform the state, 
there are still a whole host of other incentives available to people to alter people's behavior so that they think twice before pulling the pin on the family grenade. It, it, it creates that incentive to keep the nuclear family together. Sure if, does. If anything. Sure and, does. Sure I mean, does. As you're implying, it's, and it, at least in at least in this universe. But, um, I mean... It, oh, my daughter knows I don't see my mom. You know what that means? She's not going to have to see me when she gets older either. You think that has some effect on my parenting? I know I can get fired. I'm not a government worker, so to speak. Can't ever not get fired. I can get fired. If I can get fired, I do a better job. Right. Right. All right, it, man. I hope this helps. And I, you know, we didn't deal that much with sort of the, but I think this is the, the source of, um, you, you live with this constant fear of nationalization. You're like, like some factory owner in Venezuela, you know, like, I mean, it's hard to grow. It's hard to have ambition if everything can just be taken away. Right. And I think once you get to the root of what happened with your parents and you figure out how much you trust your girlfriend to the point where you're willing to put yourself in that kind of position, I think you'll find that your ambition will take off because nobody wants to work for what they cannot keep. All right. Thanks, Logan. I appreciate the call and let us know how it goes. Thank you very much, Stefan. Keep doing good work. Thanks, everyone, so much for your calls, for your comments, for your criticisms, for your feedback. Please check out the shows recently. They've been great. Please, please check out the one on the Armenian genocide and, and share. It's well worth your time. I know it's a challenging topic, but well worth your time digging in to understand, particularly people in Europe. You'll understand when you watch. So uh, thanks, everyone, so much. Please, please, please help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. What was that again, Steph? Yes, that's right. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. It's absolutely essential that we have the resources we need to do the job that most needs to be done in the world. Follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. And you can, of course, use the fdrurl.com forward slash Amazon link if you've got a little bit of shopping to do. That would be really, really helpful uh, for us and for you, hopefully, as well. It doesn't cost you anything. So thanks again, everyone, so much for a great and wonderful conversation. You make my dreams come true. Have yourself a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.